This 100th episode double feature spectacular of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by The Overlook Hotel, nestled deep in the heart of the Colorado Rockies. The Overlook Hotel is one of the original stopping places for the jet set, including four presidents, lots of movie stars, and even royalty. All the best people. Visit the Overlook Hotel and you too will feel like you've always been here. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And at the end of this episode, guys, we will have done 200 of them. Because it's our 100th episode. <laughs> Holy shit. That's a big deal. It's a very big deal. We're going to mix things up a little bit, guys, and do some housekeeping in the very, very beginning. Just talk about some stuff before we get to the actual content of the show. First and foremost, thank you to each and every one of you for listening for, you know, 100 episodes. That's pretty fucking dope. Thank you for rating and reviewing in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews, as always, are the absolute best thing. Also, uh, the other day, we recorded something. We played Man of Medan, which is a new horror game that's out from the folks at Supermassive Games. And I was just, just wanted to try it out. Uh, see what we could get recorded. So we'll probably be posting that a little bit later. Whether you guys watch it or not is entirely up to you. But if you're interested in that sort of thing, I will post a link in the description of this episode right here. So thank you all very much. We really, really appreciate it. This week, though, this 100th episode is a double feature. The late night. We are watching 1980s The Shining and 1997's Stephen King's The Shining, which was an ABC miniseries, which was, it aired over the course of six hours, so this is about a five-hour thing, I guess. I think it's four and a half hours. Yeah, because it's one and a half hours each episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's about four and a half hours long. But we watched all of it, and in some cases, twice, because I listened to the commentary. Whew, uh, that's a lot of the ABC miniseries. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. I think we we finally have come to the point where we really need to buy something new. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Tanning beds caused the demise of how many characters in 2006's Final Destination 3? Uh, I think two. Correct. Boom! Because I knew it was more than one. Mm -hmm. But three seemed out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Now, I, I don't expect you to get this question. In Eyes Without a Face, 1960, what is the name of the mad Parisian plastic surgeon that is perpetrating horrors? It's her dad. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Genessier. Sure. <laughs> Genessier. Sorry, I knew we weren't going to get that one, but I know we've covered Eyes Without a Face before, and that was an interesting one. It was. Yeah. All right, Kelsey, 
our first movie today in this double feature, the late night double feature show. is 1980's The Shining, based on the novel, of course, by Stephen King, with the screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, his longtime writing partner, and directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. What's The Shining all about? Jack Torrance gets the job of being a caretaker of a hotel that is closed during the winter season. And his son has the gift of what they call the shining. Basically, he can predict things and he can talk to people with telepathy and he can also see ghosts, basically. Yeah. And unfortunately for them, the hotel ends up being evil. Yep. That's a good, I mean, and that kind of covers the book and the movie at the same time. There are major, major differences between the movie and the book, although it follows most of, like, the primary plot points and the thrust of the action. The movie and the book have completely different focuses as far as theme is concerned, like what they want to actually talk about, what they want to express. Famously... Stephen King does not like this version. Because it's nothing like his Right, no, he loves Stanley Kubrick. He was very excited to have Stanley Kubrick make this movie. He just didn't like the way it turned out as an adaptation of his book. And we'll talk about that in greater detail in a little bit. But he had to sign something saying that he'd stop bad-mouthing the movie if he wanted to get the rights back to make the, the 97 miniseries. That's so funny. Yeah. So you won't hear him expressly talking about how much he hates the original anymore. I say the original. The, the well, his the foreword in the in the book version of The Shining that I read uh-huh. rips the movie apart. Yeah. So I don't know how much it matters that he's no longer speaking about anything because he wrote a right, foreword for the had, book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Everyone knows. Yeah. And everyone will always know. <laughs> So the movie is free if you're a Showtime subscriber. You can rent it for $4 or buy it most everywhere for 15 For some reason on PlayStation, it's $3 to rent and $10 to buy. But you know what? Put in the money. We already owned this one. We owned it on DVD. We owned it on Blu-ray. We have it digitally, uh, which is how we watched it. I mean, I, I'm going to ask you, should people watch this movie? Yes. Absolutely. This movie is like a goddamn horror masterpiece. And you have to at least watch it, I think, is the point. Yeah. Even if you're a diehard Stephen King fan and you don't want to, like, do him dirty by watching the Kubrick version, just watch it. It is a good movie in its own right, regardless of whether or not it's a good adaptation. I am glad I saw it before I read the book. Yeah, that's the same way for me, too. I I saw this movie before I, I read the book or saw the miniseries. I saw the miniseries when it originally aired in 97. I think we did too. So I was like 14 or something like that. I was I, 10. I didn't I didn't read the book until my 20s. Me too. So late 20s, I think. <laughs> we kind of watched them and read them in a little bit in reverse and I think it's better that way. Yeah. Like you say, because, because you if, you, if you watch it without the baggage, basically. Yeah, you get to experience the Kubrick film as just a film. Right. Instead of comparing it to the book, which you should not do. Right, correct. 
All right, you can take our advice or leave it, but either way, when we come back, we will talk about 1980s The Shining. The Shining, a masterpiece of modern horror, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, rated R, opens Friday, June 13. Check newspapers for local listings. All right, Kelsey, let's talk a little bit about where this comes from before we get into the plot. Uh, have you ever heard the song? Of course you have. Uh, Instant Karma by John Lennon. Well, we all shine on. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's apparently where he got the name for The Shining. Yeah. About shining on. Yeah, that's apparently where it comes from. Uh, we'll get into it more when we talk about the miniseries, but Stephen King... Uh, got the idea while on a trip with his wife and kid. I think he only he had one kid at the time. And they stayed at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. You have been there before. I We've talked about there. it in previous episodes, but we're going to assume you have not heard that. <laughs> Tell us about the Stanley Hotel. Well, first of all, it is not... <laughs> No, we were isolated. Talk- no, it is absolutely not. And as a matter of fact, it's in what's called a snow shadow. We'll talk about this in a little bit more depth, but it doesn't get much snow. So that's why it was like this summer resort kind of place is because there was a really long season without any snow just because of where it's located on the mountain. Yeah, so it is not isolated. It's not enormous. Not to say that it's small, but it's not nearly as big as we all thought it would be right or as how he describes it in the book either uh but it's it's very pretty it's very well kept i unfortunately got there right at the wrong time right because the The they decided to get rid of the topiaries and replace them with a shitty ass hedge maze right because everyone came to the hotel and was like where's the maze uh-huh. and unfortunately the area in front of the hotel is not that big right and they don't like have a back area so you'll see in the in the beginning of this movie there's a lot of aerial shots that are obviously filmed from a helicopter because you can see the shadow of the helicopter in some of the shots <laughs> but when they fly over the hotel the exterior of the hotel is is the Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood, Oregon. Which I have also been to. Yes. Uh, you went to there for a wedding, and that really did snow. Yes. <laughs> you got you to experience your first whiteout. Yes. There. It was very scary. And yeah, it's absolutely just as scary as they describe it. But the helicopter flies over, and you can see in the aerial shots there is no fucking hedge maze. <laughs> so we have two hotels. There's the Inspiration which is the Stanley in Estes Park, Colorado. And there's the actual external shot location, which is the Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood, Oregon. And then there's all the sets that they built, which were done at uh, Elstree Studios in London. So that's how we create the entirety of the Overlook Hotel, which in a way is kind of its own character in the movie. (laughs) You know, people say, oh, New York is like its own character. Anyway. So just a little bit of a primer of all the different locations that we're working with here when we talk about the Overlook Hotel. So with that said, we're flying in 
They're driving up a... Uh, the famous intro with the music yes. and the yellow bug. Uh-huh. It's a yellow bug. Which in the book, it's red. Yeah. And it's just like, Kubrick just did that just to be a dick. Like, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, because it's not like he couldn't get a red bug. Right. Later on in the movie, there is a scene, which we'll talk about, where the hotel is snowed in at this point and somebody's driving up and there's an accident on the side of the road and there is a red Volkswagen Beetle that's demolished. Yeah, so... You hear about how, oh, Kubrick, you know, he loved the book and, oh, the only reason he took the topiaries out was because he couldn't have made it look good. And then, oh, but he also decided to just say, fuck you, Steven. And like, here's a trashed red bug for no reason. It's just like, why? It seems. What is that even supposed to prove? It's just supposed to say that this is not an adaptation this is Kubrick's thing. No, fuck you, Kubrick. You wouldn't have come up with this idea without King. <laughs> I, I disagree entirely. I, I 100% disagree. It's the same thing King says at one point in the commentary on the miniseries that he thinks taking somebody else's product and adapting it is like theft. He considers it to be theft. And a successful adaptation is just successful theft. And... That what he did with the 97 miniseries where he got to write the the screenplay and he got to be heavily involved in the production and he got to choose his own director and all of that, that that's more honorable to the original product. And it's like, well, yeah, but what's the point here? What is the point of making this movie? Is the point to honor Stephen King, the great and honorable Stephen King? The only reason Kubrick's gonna make a movie is so he can praise the great King? No, he wants to make something. And that's fine. I just don't appreciate these little snippets where it's like, why are you being a dick, Kubrick? Right, it seems unnecessarily dickish, yeah. Yes, uh-huh. killing, I'm just gonna tell you, killing Halloran did nothing I don't I don't understand I'll why talk he about did why that, that happens. It's scary. Well, and we'll it's it's it. shocking. But it's like fucking why? We'll get to it. Okay. That shot of them driving is not actually them. It's just Jack. Yes. Jack is not has not gotten the job yet. He's driving up for the interview. I love how the movie just like bursts in. Like it just starts with a calm landscape and intense blaring music that juxtaposition because i know i know my word is juxtaposition but there's a lot of juxtaposition in this movie and it's supposed to create unease and it does not waste any time as soon as the first frame is shown you have calm serene vistas and boom, boom, like it's intentionally supposed to throw you off your feet from second one. I guess, but you didn't like how they did that in funny games. What do you mean? When they're driving and they've got the loud screaming punk music. It seemed a little bit too, a little too on the nose, if that makes sense. Okay. I think people think they need to love Kubrick. Mm-mm. The thing about Funny Games is it's played like it's diegetic, which is weird. <laughs> and it's played 
as almost like a jump scare, like to startle you. I don't think that this is meant to startle you. I think it's meant to show you to expect like when, when the soundtrack in, in the shining happens at the very beginning, you're not like covering your ears because what the fuck is this noise? It's, which it is in funny games where it's like, just let's crank up the punk as loud as we can and force you to be physically uncomfortable, not un have a sense of unease, like what Kubrick's trying to go towards, but to like make you go, Oh God, I don't want this. Like that's what funny games is. And those are two completely different emotions. And I don't like everything that Kubrick does. I'm, a fan, I guess, of A Clockwork Orange. I I mean, I, I understand what he was going for with Eyes Wide Shut, but it's not like a movie I enjoy going back to. But I really like Doctor Strangelove. I don't like as much, but I still also really like Full Metal Jacket. I hate Full Metal Jacket. 2001 A Space Odyssey is good but i think it's way overrated so like it's not like i'm putting kubrick up on some altar this is my favorite kubrick movie though whenever somebody tells me my favorite director is kubrick like as soon as i hear that i'm just like okay no he's not even in my top five (laughs) okay so while jack torrance is going up for his interview we meet danny and wendy who are in Boulder, which is where I went to college for the first time. I went to more than one college, and the first college I went to was Boulder. And we also meet the character of Tony. What about Tony? He's looking forward to the hotel, I bet. Tony, it's a torch. Now, come on, Tony, don't be silly. I don't want to go there, Mrs. Torch. Well, how come you don't want to go? I just don't. Tony is the little boy who lives in his mouth, mm-hmm. but speaks through his finger, uh-huh. his imaginary friend. And Tony helps him see the future. Yes. And Tony will actually speak out loud through Danny. And as far as I'm aware, as far as I've been told, they originally were planning on Tony was going to be another actor. And in the audition process, the kid who ended up playing Danny didn't realize that. And so when they when he saw in the script that he was supposed to have an imaginary friend talk to him, he just did the finger thing all by himself. Yeah. And supposedly Kubrick liked it so much he decided to incorporate mm-hmm. it. Kubrick really liked Danny Lloyd. You know, we've heard this before where when a kid's doing a movie with subject material that might be above their heads or might scare them. That you just lie to the kid and tell him it's something completely different. He thought he was in kind of a family drama. Kubrick did a lot to like protect him, which is contrary to the way he handled Shelley Duvall, which he actually actively asked people not to protect her because he was going to terrorize her through the making of this movie. Which um, is probably the biggest mistake of the film. I think it hurt her performance. I don't think it helped. I could see that argument. I think it worked in making her afraid. I think the scenes where she's afraid, she does an excellent job. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it, she just seems super weak. And that's upsetting. And this is one of the few things that, like, really upsets me about the change. Mm -hmm. 
because she's a very strong character in the book. And I appreciate that King always writes strong women. But I did want to see Wendy as a strong woman, you know, a woman who could step forward and be the equal of her husband and, and even more than her husband, the spirits that are running rampant through this hotel that, that are channeling her husband. Very yeah. rarely do you find a weak female character in a King book. Uh-huh. And I appreciate that. So it's a big slap in the fucking face when Kubrick wants you to see her as this pathetic woman. You think pathetic? Oh, yes. You think your husband's coming at you with an axe and you're not going to scream and cry? That's I didn't say that. I said when she's afraid, she does good. I'm saying that when she's not afraid, when she's supposed to just oh, love it. her okay. husband, yeah, yeah, yeah. she seems weak and frail mm. already. Well, King described it as one of the most misogynistic characters to ever be put to film. He said, quote, She's just there to scream and be stupid, which is, I mean, part of me, my instinctual reaction is to go, not every character is you or the character you would want them to be. If every character was the character you would want them to be, there would be no villains. There would be no controversy. There would like, there would not be any story to tell. The reason there are stories is because people behave in ways that you would not like them to behave. Or they would behave in ways you would want them to behave, but you yourself wouldn't be strong enough to behave that way. It's in those variations that we get stories at all. So, like, the concept of I expect this character to be this way and this is the only way the character can be a good character is kind of fucking bullshit. It's very prescriptive. And yes, when you're talking about an adaptation, maybe it's supposed to be prescriptive, but Kubrick's like, no. I'm not going to do something just because King did it. And just because it's different from what King did doesn't mean it's bad. That's what I ask for is just to analyze it on its own merits and not as did it successfully adapt the book. That's not its job. But that said, I do totally understand people's complaints about her character because she is, like you say, before she's supposed to be terrified, she is pretty weak. She's extremely weak. I mean, she bows down to Jack from the get-go. And that really upsets me because the one thing that she cares about is her son. Yeah. The one thing she's strong for is her son. So when you make her seem like, oh, it's just an accident. It's just one of those things, you know. She seems like she's okay with the way that her her husband acts. And that pisses me off. Right. Because the reason that Jack wants to change is to make it work for his family. But you don't have a problem with the fact that King wants to cast her as this sexy blonde cheerleader type in his own words. You can't just be a Shelley Duvall type. What you're saying is that King didn't like her because she wasn't hot? No, I'm saying he specifically said she should be a blonde cheerleader type. And if she's not that, then she's not Wendy. When did he say that? I don't have the exact quote here in front of me, but he specifically said blonde former cheerleader. Check it out. My idea of Wendy Torrance was that she would be a blonde, uh, that she would be beautiful, uh, that she would look like somebody who had been a cheerleader in high school about nine years before. Duvall was too emotionally vulnerable and appeared to have gone through a lot in her life, basically the exact opposite of how he pictured the character. Well, I mean... That is completely different when you put it in that context. To say that she's supposed to have had a good life growing up and that's mm-hmm. why she's a strong person, yeah. that's what he means when you put it in that context. Because otherwise you're saying that Wendy is already a broken person. 
And that's the problem that I have with uh-huh. it. King also wanted to cast John Voight as Jack Torrance. I'm trying to think of what you would know him from. You know Mission Impossible? Yeah. He's the bad guy from the first one? The old guy? Yes. I remember him. The guy who's supposed to be a good guy, but he's actually a bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's actually Angelina Jolie's dad. Oh, was he an asshole then? I guess. I remember her always saying that her dad was a jagged. Uh-huh. I mean, but he's famous for deliverance. He does a really bad accent in Anaconda. Well, look, I can blow in 10 minutes. Sorry if uh, you're feeling sensitive. We could turn around and lose two days. It's up to you. Midnight Cowboy. He's the cowboy. That's him? Yeah. That's the same person? With Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, yeah. Oh my god, age did not treat him well. That is a shame. Well, he's pretty old. (laughs) He was really good looking in Urban Cowboy. Not Urban Cowboy. That's not what I meant. Yeah. (laughs) Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking here! Yeah, that scene, he's the guy in the cowboy hat. Yeah. Age was not kind. (laughs) But yes, he's been in a lot of shit. Uh, God, but I any don't want to know that that can happen to my face. Ouch. He plays himself in Seinfeld. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but in any case, he didn't like the idea of Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance. Because what he wanted is he wanted kind of like a regular looking dude. The idea of Jack Torrance is, and we're being really free with spoilers here and not following the plot. Like directly, we kind of assume we'll, that we'll you've skip seen around. This. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, the character of Jack Torrance is uh, his full name is like John Daniel Torrance. I want to say off the top of my head, that's where Danny gets his name, and then Danny's middle name is Tony Anthony, which is where his imaginary friend Tony comes from. Because in the book, Tony is actually him Danny grown up in in like high school yeah trying to warn himself because he he as far as i remember he wants to try and save his father yeah because he really misses his father but of course he can't he can't fix the situation yeah. but in any case the character of jack torrance is somebody who has gone a little bit mad recovered and then goes completely off the deep end and his problem with jack nicholson is that jack nicholson looks like he's always a little bit crazy uh, which is very true and you see him in that interview in the beginning and you're like you know that's jack nicholson but he is he's a little nuts you know you want to get nuts now you want to get nuts come on let's get nuts that said to jack nicholson but anyway (laughs) let me tell you about this guy i know jack Mean kid, bad seed, hurt people. I like him already. (laughs) Jack Nicholson was a good-looking dude back then. He was, yeah. Even even with his hair going. Yeah. So, by contrast, they cast Steven Weber in the miniseries, who is somebody who looks like he's always been normal and never kind of went off the deep end. It's not the character that the character is any different between the two, but... It's how they play him. It's, yeah, it's how they, the, the two people who play him play either side of the middle, which is where the character actually exists. But in any case, let's let's continue on. So Tony is trying to warn Danny and Wendy about not going to the Overlook. But Wendy and Jack need the money because 
and they won't tell you this in the film. They, I think they say that he was formerly a school teacher. Maybe they mention yes, they, that. Yes, he mentions how he used to be a school teacher, yeah. And that he's just looking for a change. They don't explain yeah. the reason why Jack is no longer a school teacher, which I think is also another detriment because we don't know why Jack is trying to change his life as much as he is. Well, they take out a huge portion of the alcoholism subplot. Yes, they do. Because that's not what it's about. The story that that Kubrick's telling is a story of uh, repeating cyclical violence over time and how that never goes away. That's what Kubrick's telling. That's not the story that King is telling. Because King, former, well, current, he had the same thing in the, in the, in the commentary on the miniseries. He talks about how, like... Well, he used to be an alcoholic and he's like, well, I guess I guess you're always an alcoholic, but that's really, really important to King because it's his own story. There's a lot of that King puts of himself into his stories. Yes, which we've talked about. Yeah. And Kubrick kind of ditched a lot of that. Which is fine because the alcoholism part of the book is pretty boring. Right. And what they do, what they do here in this one is, yes, he was drinking when he hurt Danny and he stopped drinking ever since. And now he's sober and now they're going to a place that's not going to have any alcohol. And then eventually he gets his hands on quote unquote alcohol. And it's not like an important like moment. Yes. The the hotel wants him to drink, but that's not like a core to his character. You know what I mean? Like it is in the book. I think it is. I think they just don't put as much emphasis right, on it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not as core. So Jack at the, interview is explained to about the boiler <laughs> i'm sorry i was reading what i wrote and i was trying to understand it. i get it now <laughs> i wrote yeah the boiler damage you know none of the stuff we ever see him do no yeah he never goes down and <sighs> takes care of the boiler and it has no impact on the outcome of the story none like why they even mention it in the interview i don't know well, so we know that he's there to actually do stuff. That we'll never see him do. Right, because it's not important that he do stuff. <laughs> it's important that there's a reason that he's there. That's more than just, I wanted a place to be able to write, you know, which is ostensibly why he wants the job. But why do they want him? Why do they want to hire somebody at all? Well, we need to make sure that there's stuff that somebody does. It's not important to the plot, but there needs to be a reason why the hotel would hire somebody. That's it. Yeah, so he explains he's excited to have those five months to write. Then the guy says, okay, but I do need to tell you what happened to the last guy because we need to have a conversation about this. Yes, in 1970, and this is really important, this guy's name is Charles Grady, and he and his wife and two daughters were watching the hotel in 1970, so 10 years prior, we don't know who they've gotten to watch the place since then and why that person isn't watching this year. And while they were there, he went a little uh, stir crazy, got cabin fever and killed his whole family and himself with a shotgun. No, he, he used the axe on his family, on his family and, and shotgun, shotgun on himself. himself. Yes, that's going to come up later. And the confusion around the name Charles Grady and the year 1970 is intentional and we'll talk about that when we get to a later part of the movie when asked about it if it bothers him he's like no it doesn't really bother me but he says he's actually really excited to tell wendy about it 
because she'll be fascinated. She's a, quote, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. As far as my wife is concerned, uh, I'm sure she'll be absolutely fascinated when I tell her about it. She's a uh, confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. (laughs) (laughs) Which will never be brought up ever again. And I certainly don't see that in her character, do you? No. No. Because we don't get any of who she is. Because she's just a woman. Who gives a shit, right? I mean, it's not a story about her. One of the things that I think you could argue about King, why his books are so insufferably long, is that he spends way too much time giving character to people that have a single moment that is important to the story and never are important again. Not saying that that's who Wendy is, but this is what King's problem is, is he'll just spend an entire chapter giving you a backstory to a character who's just like a gas station attendant that pumps their gas one time. Like, unnecessary, King. Trim the fucking fat. When you're talking about something that ended up being a four and a half hour television miniseries and still had to cut 45 minutes almost, I think, worth of stuff that they filmed, and it's still four and a half hours long without commercials... And then they have to make this movie just over two hours. Like, you're going to have to trim the fucking fat. And the thing is, is that Wendy's character is only important to the story insofar as her relationship to Jack and Danny. Is that misogynist? Maybe. Maybe it is. I'm not doubting that. What I'm saying is, is that if you just want to tell a story about Jack who goes crazy and Danny the kid that that has The Shining, adding in a third character on top of that with Wendy that has her own characterization and motivation and stuff like that, the movie would be three hours long. Then, I'm sorry, but then in my opinion, that's that's a huge problem with the, with the medium of film. Sure. You can't give everyone a characterization. King says, film giveth and film taketh away. He says that a lot. And one of the things he he really likes as an exercise about adapting his work into screenplays is that he can't fall back on the crutch of internal monologue. If, That's true. If you can't see it, then you're not communicating it. That's and, true. And he really tries to avoid narration. Narration happens every once in a while, but he tries to avoid it. Because it's like a challenge to him. How can I communicate what I want to communicate without just telling you what people are thinking? Which he can do in his books. He can't do that in his screenplays. So it's a constraint that requires you to be more creative, I think. And also, it, 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 you know, it puts the pressure on the actors. But in my opinion, that's an actor's job. Yeah. I should be able to look at an actor And maybe I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but I should have a good impression of the emotions that they're dealing with. And if you can't do that, if you can't show me without having a, without having to use lines, then you're not a good actor. Well, I think, I think all three of the main characters in this movie do a great job of that. Even Shelley Duvall. I think she does a great job of showing me what Kubrick wanted her to show me. Yeah. Well, he's the director. Yeah. And I think he was in the wrong Okay. I actually think that Shelley Duvall does a fine job. Unfortunately, that's just the job she was given. Well, she says, I'm going to touch on this very lightly because there's concerns for her mental health now in her in her current state. But post this movie, 
she said that she considers this the hardest performance that she's ever done, but also that it's the most incredible performance she's ever done. And Jack Nicholson says the same thing. He says it's the most difficult role he's ever seen an actress take on. And he puts the utmost respect towards Shelley Duvall for having to put up with that. There's behind-the-scenes footage of her pulling hair out and being good-natured about it. But Kubrick is telling people around the set, like, do not comfort her. Do not coddle her. She's going to be upset. I want her to be actually upset so I can get it on film. Is that the most effective way to get what you want out of an actor or actress? Absolutely not. Actors and actresses have a job, and that is conveying something that they might not necessarily see or think or feel. That is their job, which is why I've had the long-standing belief that if you are a method actor, you're not a good one. The problem, okay, the problem with method acting is that the people that we all know to be quote-unquote Oh, no, they totally distorted what method acting is. Yeah, that's not what method acting was originally supposed to be. Method acting was originally supposed to be try to empathize with the character to know what they feel. It was when you were on stage. Yes, exactly. You were not you. You were that person. So what we know about method actors now where they just become the character for the entire production, that's not what method acting actually is. That's them showing you that they can't be another character they have to be that person or they can't right. present that which character. tells me that you're a bad actor exactly yeah anyway and, and i mean i mean like everybody makes Talking this huge deal acting. about meisner and his method acting it's just like all the dude was saying was when you're on stage it's not you anything uh-huh. that you think and feel is unimportant right that's all he was saying, and everybody makes this huge, big deal about how amazing he was. Who was it that took it? Kind of, was it, um, what's her name? Steinberg? Steinman? Yeah, Stein. Something, yeah, uh, anyway. I read her book in high school. I don't remember. <laughs> I had to read both of them, uh-huh. which is why I was so mad when I found out what it actually was. <laughs> but in any case, you shouldn't have to drive your actor or actress mad in order to portray madness. But... It is quite an accomplishment on Shelley Duvall's part. I would say her performance in this movie and putting up with that. It's so funny, too, because the only other things I can even think of right now that Shelley Duvall was in, I know she's been in more things. But the two things I think of, aside from The Shining, is fairy tale theater, where Uh she was just the host. Yes. I don't think she ever was actually in one of the stories. And when she played Little Bo Peep. Well, she was also... In Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. <laughs> she was also Olive Oil in Popeye. I never saw that. Yeah. Um, she was a character in Annie Hall. Never saw that. You never saw Annie Hall? Mm-mm. Oh, man. I mean, I would say it's not as necessary anymore to... It's a, it's a great film, but it's... Is that the one where, like, some guy's talking about how expensive Coke is, and then he, like, sneezes and it goes everywhere? I don't know. It's the one where they're in line for a movie and somebody's talking about what a director is thinking or or whatever. I, I can't remember the exact specifics, but and then so Woody Allen walks off screen and then pulls in that actual person and then has them tell the person that they're wrong. 
Like, it's really funny. What do you do when you get stuck well, on a movie line with a guy like this behind you? Wait a minute, why can't just, I give my maddening. opinion? It's a free country. He, he can give you, you have yeah. to give it so loud. I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And, and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. really, really. I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan well, have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah, just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Oh boy, if life were only like this. It's a, it's a hilarious movie. It's very insightful, but it's just fucking Woody Allen being Woody Allen. And one thing I do not need more of right now in my life is fucking Woody Allen. Okay, let's, since we brought it up, let's just say Woody Allen is allowed to be funny. Woody Allen is allowed to be clever. That does not mean he's a good person. Right, yeah. Uh -huh. But I mean, think about this. The Shining and Popeye came out the same year. That's nuts to me. But like I say, she she looks back on the experience ultimately positively that she knows why Kubrick was treating her like that, that she wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but she'd never want to do it again. Nor should she. Nor should she be expected to go through anything like that even the first time. One of the other things that Kubrick did to prepare people was he had them watch three movies. And what were they? One is Eraserhead. Okay. I think it has to do with the discombobulation and unease that he wants to express. Okay. The other is The Exorcist. Sure. And the other is Rosemary's Baby. Excuse so, me? If you want to talk about, just because you love Rosemary's Baby doesn't mean other people can't love it too. That's not what I meant. <laughs> I mean, here's a movie that's exactly like the book. Oh, that no. We're gonna make a movie that's he's, nothing yeah, like no. The book. But he's not. He didn't have people watch Rosemary's Baby as what a successful adaptation is. It's like his mood board for this movie. I mean, I loosely. I I feel like. Well, you have a character of a woman who feels like she's going insane. Is she being gaslighted? This is no dream. This is real. You know, like that she goes through that in the end. We l overlook that there is an entire thread at, at the end of the movie of just Shelley Duvall looking for Danny and the ghosts are becoming more powerful and they're manifesting so she can see them and she's going mad enough that she's getting a closer connection to them so she can see them. That whole thing is happening and it's just Shelley Duvall's character. It's we're just following her. But people overlook that because that's the same time that Jack and Danny are in the hedge maze. And that's what people are really here for. And so we forget the fact that there is a subplot of Shelley Duvall alone in this house when it's at its most powerful. Despite the fact that he terrorized her, Kubrick did actually praise her quite a bit after the fact in interviews and that sort of thing. Again, not trying to justify the way he treated her. But it's not like he actually did hate her or anything like that. He was very much gaslighting her, though. But he was ultimately very impressed with her final performance in the film. That story always reminds me of something that happened to me in high school. Mm -hmm. My senior year, our last show of the year, 
it was just the senior class of drama kids, so it was very small. Yeah. It, it was a student-directed. It was all the students. The students did pretty much all of it themselves. Yeah, I was in one of those. And we were doing a rehearsal just in class one day, and there was a girl whose character was supposed to be extremely disliked and extremely shunned, okay? Yeah. But... Can kind of see where this is going. Yes, but according to the kid who was the director, she just wasn't showing pain. She wasn't showing any like sadness over this. She she wasn't showing that she felt othered. So he asked us one day to be mean to her and just like just naturally, just normally, when we're not on stage, just be a dick to them. Yeah, I'm not good at that, so I just tried to avoid her. But other kids were actually full-on shunning her. By the end of the class period, the girl was bawling. She had no idea. No one was telling her. When we finally told her, the kid who did it, did it in front of the whole class. And he said, I want to talk to somebody. You know, we only have like two minutes before the bell rings. And I want to apologize to her, but I want to explain to her why this happened. Mm-hmm. She was real sweet about it. She, even through her tears, she was laughing and she was just like, I get it. But it's just like. It doesn't mean she didn't feel like that. Exactly. And I don't think it was successful. And and admittedly, we're in high school and we're not on an actual production and we're not getting paid and all that. But I think, I think it really showed to me that if your actor doesn't understand why you're doing that to them, then you're only going to hurt them personally. And that's not doing, I mean, that might affect their performance, but it's more affecting them on a personal level than it is on an actor level. But that's just my I mean, the only way they can know to take this experience that they think is real and turn it into a performance so they can tap into that understanding and that new empathy that they've gained for the character that they're supposed to portray is if they know that it's not real. And so you can't have your cake and eat it too that way. You know what I mean? So... In any case, it's it's never worth it to actually make somebody feel awful in order to portray a character that feels awful. If a character wants to think about the time their dog died in order to get themselves to cry, that's fine. But you don't kill their dog in order to get them to cry. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Fuck that. Okay, so back to the, the storyline. <laughs> so he tells the doctor, I don't want to talk about Tony anymore. And the implication is that he has been told by Tony, you shouldn't be talking about me. Right. The things I show you are just between you and me, which unfortunately also makes it hard for the adults to trust this this character. Right. Yeah. Well, or think, listen to him. I think the understanding of what's going on with Danny works a lot better when you have the more time that they have in the miniseries. I think that doctor kind of explains everything much better than this doctor in this one does. When the doctor asks about how Danny broke his arm when he was even younger, she says, oh, it was just one of those things, purely an accident. He had messed around in his father's office and his father, you know... Yanked him by the arm. Yanked him, but he was just a little too drunk and a little too... uh, Aggressive. Aggressive. And again, this is one of the reasons why I really don't like the way Kubrick is displaying this character, because in the book and in the miniseries, she doesn't make an excuse for him. She she may not be as harsh with it, but she's she, trying to downplay it. Yeah. 
But she does say he did this, he regretted it, mm -hmm. and he no longer drinks. And that's really not how she plays it in this version. Um. It's like, oh, you know, he didn't mean to. And, you know, and he stopped drinking. It sounds like a battered woman making excuses for her husband. You don't think that that's the entire point? I think that's the point that Kubrick is making. Yeah. And I like it better in King's version where she says, look, he did it. And it was shitty. But guess what? He doesn't drink anymore and he won't do it again. And I like that better. I think people who are in relationships with alcoholics are are and are trying to keep them together in spite of the fact that they may be worried about it are probably more likely to not want to be so open and bold with strangers who have the power to take their kids away. I think the idea that you downplay it is entirely understandable. Now, I, I'm fine with both versions, actually. I think they both did a great job. So, he ends up getting the job, and the next scene we see is them showing up to the Overlook. And they're being shown around, and he explains that, oh, all the best people in all of history have come yes, to this hotel. All the, all the best people. <laughs> like, famous people? All the best people. It's so great. <laughs> oh, this old place has had an illustrious past. In its heyday, it was one of the stopping places for the jet set, even before anybody knew what a jet set was. We had uh, four presidents who stayed here. Lots of movie stars. Royalty? All the best people. They show the famous hedge maze. They, they do mention that it was originally built on Indian burial ground. Uh -huh. That's a big thing for King. Yeah. <laughs> he loves Indian burial grounds. Pet cemetery. Yeah. But again, that won't come up ever again. <laughs> Unless you're a conspiracy theorist. Yes. We'll talk about Room 237, the documentary, at the end. Okay. I have, I have opinions about that. Well, we'll that. talk briefly about it. I, I think I have the same opinions as you. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> they show them the snow cat, and he explains, look, when the snow gets bad, this is going to be your only way out. Yeah. They go into the ballroom, and she's just like, pink and gold are my favorite color. Oh, it's so fucking ostentatious. <laughs> it's hideous. It's very 70s, and they say that they just got it redone, like, in a year or two ago. And it's right, like, but, to, but to match what it was in the 20s or teens, I think, is what he said. Uh, I don't know. Well, it's... It, yeah, it's, it's... It's a bit the, much. <laughs> color theory in the 70s was kind of nuts, yes. Yes. And she makes a joke about, wow, we could have a big party in here, and he says, well... If you're drinkers, then I hope you brought your own supplies, to which Jack says, we don't drink. And he says yeah. it very definitively. Uh -huh. Meanwhile, we've met a Dick Halloran, played, played by Scatman Carruthers. Yes. And he's so much better than the one in the remake. We'll talk he's about... so much better. We'll talk about Melvin Van Peebles later, <laughs> when we get to the remake. <laughs> he seems so sweet and good-natured, and yet he also feels very... I think in the remake, it's a little worse... <laughs> But any time an adult man is like, can I hang out with oh. your little child all oh, by myself? Yes. yes. You say no. <laughs> yes. Now, this is completely innocent. He wants it to is. talk to Danny but about this. Every shrink. single time, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> out of context. This is awful. It's really bad. Like, let me hang out with your young child without you. Yes, alone. And do you like ice cream, Danny? 
so creepy. It's it's. I think it's even worse in the remake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he asks him, would you like ice cream? And while they're sitting there in the kitchen, they end up talking telepathically. Yes. And he's like, hey, you know, this is cool. We can speak through our minds. And Danny is like, I'm not supposed to talk about it. And he says, why? And he says, Tony told me not to. And DeCallern is like, hey, man, it's okay. There are people that, you know, we're not the only ones. There are people all around the world who can shine. But you seem to shine a lot more than most people. Yeah. But Some I mean, people... there's, a de- there's a demonstration in the miniseries that they don't do in this, which I think is is pretty effective in explaining exactly how much more powerful Danny is. Yes. He explains most people who have it don't even know they have it. Uh-huh. It's just a small thing, and they might occasionally have feelings that they can't explain. And so, like, or they can predict things without knowing why. Yeah. But he explains, you are pretty powerful. And they also talk about how it's, you know, it's passed down genetically. And so the implication is is that Jack has this too. But he was never aware of it. Yeah. And so that's probably what led him to drink in the first place. And then he explains... Places can shine, too. If enough things have happened there, Uh they can soak up that energy. And the shining, sorry, and the overlook shines. Yes. To which Danny says, did something bad happen here? And, you know, he tried, Dick Halloran is very delicate with it. He realizes I'm talking to a toddler who can barely understand these things. And he tries to explain that, look, you know, just traces have left been left behind. But, you know, it's just like pictures in a book. They can't actually hurt you. Right. That's a term that they use. But then Danny specifically asks, what's in room 237? And he says, nothing. There ain't nothing in room 237. So you just stay out. Yeah. What about room 237? Room 237? You're scared of room 237, ain't you? No, I ain't. Mr. Allen, what is in room 237? Nothing. There ain't nothing in room 237. But you ain't got no business going in there anyway. So stay out. You understand? Stay out. And do we remember why they changed that? A few things about Room 237. Stephen King wrote in The Shining novel 217. There is really a 217 in the Stanley Hotel. Which is where he stayed. Yes. And since people know that there is a Room 217, the Stanley asked that they change the number to 237, where the the room numbers don't go up that high. So there is no actual room number associated with the room that's in the movie The Shining. In the miniseries, they revert back to 217, but it's a corner room in reality. It's not on film. I said that when we were watching it. You did, and I was able to confirm that. I was like, hey, (laughs) that's supposed to be a corner room. I know I've been there. (laughs) But they kind of embrace it now, right? Oh, yeah. But at the time... Because they're making mucho books. Uh, (laughs) But at the time, they were like, we don't want people worried about any particular room. So could you please change it to 237? People call and ask, 
I want to be in room 217. Like, they have a, a list. Uh-huh. Um, and you have to pay extra to be there. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Dick Halloran leaves. Everyone's gone. It's now just the three of them in this giant hotel all by themselves. And Wendy is at first really happy. She brings in breakfast in bed to Jack. Uh-huh. And she's like... I tell you, I'm so happy being here. She says that. that I tell you. That's what she it's sounds so like. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how fast you get used to such a big place. I tell you, when we first came up here, I thought it was kind of scary. <laughs> I fell in love with it right away. Uh, Jack at this time also says that he, when he came up here for the interview, it's like he had been there before. You know, there is such a thing as deja vu, but this was ridiculous. When I came up here for my interview, it was as though I'd been here before. I mean, we all have moments of deja vu, but this was ridiculous. It was almost as though I knew what was going to be around every corner. <laughs> And that's going to come up later in our conversation. And then we get a shot of Jack in this giant lounge. It's not the lounge. What what, do you, what would you call that? Where Foyer? He, lobby? I guess it's... But the lobby's in the front. Yeah, he's kind of in it's this... It's like a lounge. It's like a it's lounge not, area. It's not where you it's drink. It's not the ballroom. Yes. Which has the bar. Yes. It's more like a lounge where there's this giant Native American tapestry on the wall. Huge and windows. And a fireplace. An enormous fireplace. Yeah. And he's just sitting there typing on his typewriter. I want a typewriter so bad. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking cool. Some, an interesting thing that Kubrick does. Okay. The thing about Kubrick is he is a stickler for consistency and perfection and people read a lot into any time there's a mistake and sometimes there's just fucking mistakes like you can see the shadow of the helicopter sometimes a cigar is just a cigar but there are i think three different colored and modeled typewriters that jack uses in this movie and there's no rhyme or reason to when they change i think that does contribute to the discombobulation inherent throughout the movie, but I don't know what else to read into it beyond that, if anything. Because I seriously doubt that was just a mistake. There's no way they'd fuck up the colors of the typewriter. I understand why people think Kubrick is this godlike genius. Eh. But... My opinion, half the shit that you guys, that people, pr- not you specifically, but right, half the I, shit I that it. people praise him for, uh-huh. I think he did it, like you say, with the colors. Hey, if I put some different colors on here, people will think I did it for a reason. Well, I th- I think I think it does contribute to that, but I don't know that there is anything else to read into it. I just think he's... I think he's good, and I don't think he does all these crazy fucking intricate things that people think he did. I think he made mistakes. I think there were times when set design was lazy. I think there were times Mm -hmm. when it was like, I don't know why they had to go that way to get to that room, and then later they went that way. Ah, fuck it. Who's gonna notice? Oh, they noticed? Oh, but they think I did it on purpose, and I'm smart. Cool. So That's Kubrick to me. No, I get it. (sighs) 
I, I understand that. I don't think, though, that you can discount something being cool in a movie just because it's only half intentional. For instance, the fact that the layout of the hotel doesn't make sense. When they go into Ullman's office in the beginning, there shouldn't be able to be a window there. But there is. He just wanted a window in the shot. Right? But it was a lot harder and it was a lot more work to make it happen. They also had to deal with the fact that they needed to lay out all these sets and they needed to get from one place to the other and they needed to have sets up at the same time all in one soundstage. And so they needed to lay it out weird in order to fit it all in this soundstage. So some of it's entirely practical. But whether there's practical considerations or not, the idea that you're going to feel, again, I'm going to use this term, discombobulated. It's not a catch-all term. I don't think that the helicopter shadow is there to make you discombobulated. It's not a catch-all term for any inconsistency you might find, but I think you would expect to find inconsistencies in this, and it contributes to the movie that you do find inconsistencies in it. I do not think that it's an easy way to check off, write off any inconsistency that you find. But there are things where it's like, why would they change that typewriter? To create confusion. It worked. But Kelsey, explain to me what practical reason outside the concerns of the film would there be to have different typewriters of different colors and models? Do you think they couldn't have found the same typewriter in the same color to get multiple versions of it? Do you think that was impossible for them? No. So it had to have been intentional then. This man is famous for filming up to 100 shots of the same scene in order to get it fucking perfect. You think he wouldn't know that these typewriters were different colors? But why? To create confusion. Yes. You're putting that in there. It I, worked. I, like, I, <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from, and I am just as likely to be skeptical of that sort of thing. However, you can't just write every single thing that contributes to the film off as, no, he's just a fuckhead, and he didn't even know he was doing it. You can't just do that. Just like I don't write every single inconsistency off as being intentional, you can't write every inconsistency off as being unintentional. You see what I'm saying? Yes. We need to meet somewhere in the middle on that. I agree. I just... I'm so sick of hearing how incredible Cooper is. I understand. Anyway, I also hate that Jack is pretty much, after that scene of Breakfast in Bed, just irritated with Wendy. Just all the time, doesn't matter what she does. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, you know, like you said, they they have to cut a lot of shit out. And I'm fine with that. But it should be building. It shouldn't be, hey, I'm glad you brought me breakfast in bed. And then the next scene, when I'm in here, or what the fuck I'm doing, you stay out. So what? Also, so he's just crazy automatically? Cool. Well, there's also, like you say, there's stuff that has to be cut, and there's big gaps in the days. We get whole title cards that tell us that. Also, you've never been just annoyed with my existence before? Just my existence. No. Oh, that's bullshit. No. I've been annoyed with your existence before. Cool. Not like, you know, oh, I wish you weren't alive or anything like that, but it's like, I wish that I was just here by myself right now. 
I've had that feeling before. I will never feel that way. <laughs> I guess that's just the way we're built. Yeah. <laughs> it has nothing to do with you, but when it's like, I'm trying to do one thing and I wish I was here by myself, but I, <laughs> I, but I love you and I want to be with you, but then I get you like talking at me and I'm like, I just want to focus on this thing. If I had my druthers right now and could poof you into another room, I would. <laughs> it's, it's not this is that a I, lot to be hearing right now. I've never heard this from Chris it's before. Not, it's not that I don't absolutely adore you and want to spend every second of my life with you from now into eternity. But there are times when my my initial instinct is to get upset. And you know that. We all have that. Your initial instinct is like I to, can be to irritable or something like I'd that. But I never not want you here. <laughs> That's total bullshit. That's not true. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, you know, then you were like, no, you know what? You just need to stop, take a breath and go, I fucking love this woman. <laughs> Whatever I'm doing right now is not important enough for me to feel this way so that's i mean that's why we don't ever talk about it because it's never an issue you know i don't ever really i don't often have a problem with being able to to shut that part of my brain up but if uh you ever do wind up murdered now you know why cool (laughs) so the snow has really started to come down. We have already seen the twins. They presented themselves to Danny very early on. In the game room? In the game room. Uh, they, they walked in, they whispered to each other, and then they walked out. Yeah. Uh, now, he is on his little bike. Uh, a tricycle. I guess a tricycle. Mm-hmm. I never really thought of those as tricycles. But it's like a big wheel, but yeah, it's, it's like a, a big tricycle wheel. big wheel. You know, with the large plastic wheels. And he's just running around on this hotel. And they're following him. And it's a really cool shot. They're following him around on his level, which is really neat. They, and- got, they got that camera like an inch off the ground, like as low as they could get it in order to get that shot. And I fucking love that shot they didn't realize until they were reviewing the dailies later that it was making that noise that it was making and that's another part of this movie just in general that i love is the sound composition and this shot of him going through is fantastic with that it also has and this is going to contribute to something i'm going to talk about later when i talk about perspective it also has a wandering camera so there's a moment where the camera isn't just following objectively Danny the whole time it it stops and then has to catch up to him again and that implies that the camera has its own subjectivity that the camera I've always felt that the camera was supposed to be the ghosts like in Evil Dead they're following why, him around that's why you get that shot uh, at the very very beginning That's flying overhead and it seems to be spectral flying over the Glacier National Park in Montana. And it flies over that peaceful, serene water like it has, like the camera has a mind of its own. Yeah, because there's no water on your way up to Mount Hood. (laughs) They're they're on, uh, in that scene, they're on what's called Going to the Sun Road, just north of Mary's Lake. And that area actually does shut down during the winter because it snows too much. But so he turns a corner... And at the end of the hallway, there are the twins at the end of the hallway. Mm -hmm. 
pay they, attention to the perspective of the camera in this exchange too because that's going to be important later and they say the famous lines of come play with us danny forever and, and ever, ever and ever, ever. and it for whatever reason they have a british murdered. accent <laughs> yeah and it, and it flashes i mean because they are british but it, it flashes to the shot of them axe murdered and then back to them being fine and then he covers his eyes yes he does an excellent job of appearing terrified, terrified for a kid who had no idea he was in a horror movie right like what on earth did they tell him he was seeing no if anything i would love to say that kubrick is an excellent cameraman he is an excellent cinematographer so he makes you terrified of hotel hallways I can't walk down a hotel hallway without thinking of these scenes. Yeah. And that's pretty incredible considering I don't have that. I mean, I think Kubrick is a great filmmaker, but you've already heard my distaste for him and his fans. So the fact that I still walk down hotel hallways and when I'm by myself, I'm scared. Not because of the book, but because of this. Now the book added an additional thing to scare the shit out of me walking down hallways, but we'll get to that when we get to the remake. Yes. And how the remake did an awful fucking job with it. Yeah. So let's give credit where credit is due with the camera. There is actually a cinematographer whose name is John Alcott, and John Alcott worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey. He worked on Barry Lyndon. These are all Kubrick the, films. Never seen Barry Lyndon. So yes, he he the two of them work together. They, they are work beautiful well together. filmmakers. Yeah. Also famed cameraman, and I guess this is now the time to talk about it. Famed cameraman Garrett Brown worked on this. He was asked kind of at the last minute from what I hear to work on it. So the reason Garrett Brown is important, he invented the steady cam. If you wanted to get moving shots before you had basically three options, and usually only two. So the one that you don't usually have is a crane option, right? Where you put it on a crane and it can get high shots and it can move around weird, interesting places. That's usually not an option, especially when you're filming interiors. But the two that you usually have are a dolly. So when a camera pushes in and it's not zooming in the focus, if it's physically pushing in, it's, it's called a dolly. But it's literally on a dolly. They put it on a track and they put this thing on wheels and they roll it across the track. It is very smooth and consistent, but you need to hide the track, especially if the camera shot is going to go anywhere where the physical camera is going to eventually be or was. Or you have the option of being handheld and handheld. Like the shaky cam? Well, okay. So a lot of shaky cams, they're physically slapping the camera. No joke. I thought it was just because they were running around with the people. That's what they're trying to make it seem like. And no, they 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 literally are doing handheld. You know, it is bumpy. But when you when you think of shaky cam, uh-huh. shaky cam is handheld camera where they're physically making it shake like that. Why? Um, so it can have that effect. When I film something, you can fucking right, right, right. tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you want a smooth shot and you're handheld, you're not gonna be physically slapping it or anything you're still going to get the shakiness to some degree so if you want a smooth shot that moves independently of a track there was zero option for that so garrett brown invented the steadicam 
Steadicam is made to wherever you move the rig that you're holding onto, the camera stays perfectly in place. If you physically move the rig from one place to another, that's what moves the camera. But if you rotate it or anything like that, if it shakes or bumps, the camera is perfectly still. He invented this. It was used for the first time in Bound for Glory, which is a biopic about Woody Guthrie. But it was probably used first and most famously in Rocky. That's how they got the scenes of him running. And when he runs up the stairs, there's no track on the stairs, but the camera follows him up the stairs and it does so smoothly. Could you imagine how that would look if that was just handheld? So this was they were testing it out on Rocky. And the first time it was used extensively on a movie was in this. In The Shining, it's moved fucking everywhere. And they actually hired Garrett Brown, the inventor, in order to be the camera operator for the Steadicam shots. And they're fucking everywhere in this movie. And they're beautiful. And although there is one moment we talked about with Danny on the trike, that's actually Kubrick himself as the camera operator on that. And they set him in this little like wheelchair cart thing. And they, they just rolled him around behind Danny to get that shot. Uh, but mostly, like in the hedge maze and other places, that's Garrett Brown doing the Steadicam operation. That's very cool. Now you can get your own Steadicam for, like, your your GoPro or your cell phone, little handheld little rigs that you can do. Uh, but that never would have existed if it wasn't for Garrett Brown. It's very cool. I'm sorry I made you tell that story before you wanted to. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. So, we get a scene where... So as the, the tension's been building in the family and Danny is starting to see things and Jack seems to just always be separate from Wendy and Danny. So Wendy and Danny are sitting in some room somewhere watching TV and yes, famously, there's no cord for the TV. So yeah. how are they watching it? Uh -huh. And Danny says to his mom, can I go into the room and grab my fire truck? She says, no, daddy's taking a nap. And he says, I'll tiptoe, I'll be really quiet. And she says, okay. Uh, but when he goes in there, Jack is awake and he is sitting on his bed staring off into the distance. Yes. And he calls Danny to him and he's like, are you having a good time? And Danny says, yes, dad. And he goes, good. I want you to have a good time. And then they sit there for a little second and then Danny says, dad, do you feel bad? And, and Jack goes, no, I'm just tired. I can't sleep. I've got too much to do. And Danny says, I guess so. And then he says, Dad? Yes? You'd never hurt us, would you? Right? He just asks him out of nowhere. To which Jack says, did your mother say that to you? So we're getting this feeling that Jack feels that, the, that Wendy blames him for you know, everything, and that Jack feels that Wendy doesn't trust him uh, with Danny. Yeah. But Danny also kind of doesn't trust his dad. Well, yeah, his dad's been acting fucking weird ever since uh -huh. they got there. Plus, he, he can see all this shit, and he knows it's affecting his father. But a lot of this is being told to us between the lines, and that's fine. I'm okay with them doing it that way. But I wish that they had made things a little bit clearer. I wish that we had maybe seen a moment between Jack and Wendy where 
Wendy it stands up to him. It's just mm-hmm. like, if you touch him again, I will leave you, which is what they did in the book, which is what they did in the remake. And it makes it just so much more clear instead of just all of a sudden he thinks his wife hates him. And it's like, earlier in the film, we saw her defending you. So I don't know where this is coming from. Well, see, this is where I think it's better that he's irrationally paranoid is what's being communicated. Because when it happens in the miniseries and in the book, I'm like, Wendy, you're being the one that's irrational right now, and it makes me mad. So I kind of like that he's being irrational, because he's the one that's supposed to be crazy. And I think we need to have a a blanket conversation here with this movie. We're going to use terms like crazy and insane and things like that all the time. This is not to, like belittle people who have mental issues uh, in any way shape or form but it is a movie about going homicidally insane so we have to touch on this kind of stuff so please don't think if you have any mental issues we are being derogatory towards you in any way shape or form and if we if you are offended in any way please accept our apologies unless you murdered your family then you're crazy then fuck you (laughs) anyway There's also, we didn't even talk about, like, the famous carpeting that, you know, is everywhere when you talk about The Shining. Hey, I got those new shoes. Yes, he did. (laughs) There are tons and tons of uh, movies that will reference this. American Horror Story Hotel, which takes place in a hotel, has a very similar carpet, you know, Uh all these things. There's also carpeting in Room 237, which is, like, purple and green, and it is fucking fantastic. I love it. But this is a very famous design. Yeah. And I think the fact that it's orange and the angles is supposed to make you feel disoriented and uncomfortable. Right. So, Jack has a nightmare at his desk where he screams. So, Wendy runs to him. And she's like, oh my god, what's happening? And he's just like, I had the worst nightmare I've ever had. I dreamed that I killed you, but I didn't just kill you. I chopped you up into little pieces. And Jack is genuinely horrified by this. Oh, he does great. He is, he is, but here's the thing. If I ever had that dream, I would not tell you. (laughs) He just, he just lets everything out. And it's like, I wouldn't want to scare you. (laughs) He's like, oh God, I had this dream where I, I chopped you up into little pieces and killed both you and Danny. And it's like, dude, just... Ixnay, Ixnay. <laughs> What's wrong? Jane! Uh, most terrible nightmare I ever had. It's the most horrible dream I ever had. It's okay, it's okay now. Really. Well, I dreamed that I, that I killed you and Danny. But I didn't just kill you. I cut you up into little pieces. Oh, my God. I must be losing my mind. But to see, this is, this feels out of nowhere because up until this point, he seems so disinterested in his family and so unloving. And then it's like he has this nightmare and he's, he's, horrified at this idea and i understand that they're trying to emulate him going back and forth and that the hotel is winning and then he tries to to uh fight back 
but there's not enough of him fighting against the hotel. There's not enough of him resisting it to where this makes sense. But this is also the most emotional he's been up to this point. So what, what we're seeing here is when he's just like bored out of his mind, that's when he's starting to tip over and the hotel is is taking over. And when he gets angry or perturbed, it takes over there too. But when he is worried for the safety of his family, and that is his immediate, visceral, and uncontrollable action, he breaks completely free of the control of the hotel in that one shining moment, especially when he's at his most emotionally erratic. You know, he's able to just break free of that control. And when that goes away, the control comes back. While this is happening, Danny being the naughty little boy that he is, uh-huh. comes by room 237. Yeah. Now, we don't get to see what happens to him, but we do see him walk in. Uh-huh. Where Wendy is trying to comfort Jack. Uh-huh. He's got his thumb in his mouth. Some of his shirt is torn, and I think you can see... He's got finger bruises Finger around bruises his around his neck. Yeah. So he's been choked by somebody. From across the room, Wendy can't tell. She just tells him, go upstairs, daddy's just sick, I'm taking care of him. She thinks that's why he's entering the room. Uh But he just keeps walking towards him. He's like in a daze. Yes, and she is like, why aren't you minding me? And she gets up to grab him, and then she sees what's happened to him. And she turns to Jack, and she finally is like, you did this. You did this to him. Finally, she's like, no, fuck you. You touched my child again. We're done. This is one thing which I won't go into the particulars yet. I really like the way that the miniseries handles it. There's a particular moment that I really, really like. Because here's the thing. What Wendy's going through is she didn't do it, so it must have been Jack. Right? Logically, that's the only conclusion you come to. He also just told her, I dreamed about cutting you up into little pieces. He dreamed. Which meant he was asleep downstairs. He couldn't have done this to Danny. If we, if she believes him, but yes, continue. Right, but there's obviously something else going on here that needs to be investigated further. The fact that she immediately jumps to you choked the child. If he's in a daze, it must have just happened. Jack was downstairs asleep long enough to dream and then freaking out about this. And if it happened before that, then where the fuck were you, Wendy? Like... Yes, you know it can't be you, so it has to be Jack. But later on, she's like, there's somebody else in this hotel. When when Danny tells her what happened. Right. But, like, the idea that there could be somebody else in this giant hotel, just your, your first instinct is to jump to Jack. Now, I understand that the story sets this up by the fact that he broke Danny's arm and all of that, and he's been acting erratic. But it doesn't prevent me from being like, You know, yelling at the screen because I know something that the character doesn't. I recognize that that's kind of a failing on my part, though. But it doesn't not make me frustrated. Well, this this is what just drives Jack over the edge. He is pissed when she when she blames him for this. Uh huh. So out of anger, he walks around the hotel and walks into the bar 
And he sits there at the empty bar and he talks about, God, what wouldn't I give? I'd give my soul just for one drink. Yeah, for a cold glass of beer or whatever it is that he says. And then he, he has his eyes o- his hands over his eyes. He takes them down and we see a big smile on his face. This is another scene that plays with perspective. Just to, I'm not going to get into the reasons why yet, but we have the camera directly on Jack and then he sees something and then it's directly on another character who wasn't there before, implying that this is what Jack sees. This is when, for me, the movie gets really good. Yeah. So. When when Jack is full on taken over by the hotel, then I can just relax and enjoy the film. Because up until that point, I'm constantly angry about Wendy. I'm constantly frustrated that Jack doesn't seem to have any other character traits than being a crazy person. Yeah. Um. But then here, it's like, okay, I can accept now he has gone insane, and I can enjoy, I can enjoy Jack's performance. Well, he's also kind of, he's also a little bit reveling in this, and he knows it's, part of him knows it's not real. Whether he's right or not is something else. But he he knows it's not real. Until he takes that first swallow, and it's so good. Yeah, and so he's just enjoying this. He's like, I kind of don't care if it's real, right? And uh, by the way, the bartender Lloyd is played by Joe Turkle, who you might know as uh, Tyrell from Blade Runner, the dude with the big glasses who created the replicants. You made me cry. I know. It's very sad. I hate that scene. (laughs) But uh, they're talking and chatting. It's so good. Yes, it's it's a really great scene, and and you should have seen it. Uh, When Wendy, after having talked to Danny comes downstairs in hysterics and grabs Jack. And we see that there is no alcohol there. Lloyd is not there. Jack doesn't have anything. And, and she are, but he seems drunk. Right. Right. But also he's like, you know, this is, this contributes to the thing where he kind of knows it's not real, but doesn't care. So when she grabs him and is like, there's somebody else in the hotel, he just looks at her and is like, are are you you fucking out of your mind? Are you out of your fucking mind? Yes. That's it. Are you out of your fucking mind? And it is so good. Because obviously he was just experiencing some kind of dementia right now. But he accuses her in a way that like the fact that there could be somebody else in here means you're the crazy. Ah, such a great reaction clip. It needs to be a reaction gif in my opinion. I think I wrote this entire scene down. Between him and the bartender. Yeah. I think I have, like, all the lines because I Is love it. Is there anything in particular that you think stands out? Because I'm going to be playing clips. It was three goddamn years ago. <laughs> it was three goddamn years ago. No, that, that whole scene is just really, really fucking good. When he takes that first drink and it hits him, mm-hmm. that's real. And this is, this is when, like... Jack Nicholson is an incredible actor. I think he can be a little bit lazy sometimes. Oh, yeah. But. He rests on his laurels quite a bit. Right. And that's okay. Especially now. That's He's done his work. He doesn't need to work hard anymore, right? (laughs) But this is when, up to this point, it's been really good. Like, if you hear me typing, then, you know, like that. I love that kind of mania he represents. and, And that's kind of what Stephen King is talking about, what he didn't like. But, like, he really is doing incredible things in this movie. When he's talking to Lloyd is one of those great 
moments when he's following her up the stairs and saying wendy light of my life <laughs> like it's so fucking good he's incredible in this movie wendy darling light of my life so wendy has said there's somebody else in the hotel he went into room 237 and he got strangled by some woman and jack agrees he'll go up there now this is the room 237 scene where we get to see the incredible carpet and this is probably the one scene that, like, freaked me out when I first saw it. Because, yeah, it's creepy. And, yeah, there's some scary imagery. But when I saw this scene, I was so scared. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was, like, 12 when I first saw it. Yeah. This gorgeous woman gets out of this bathtub. Completely naked. They and make he's out. Like, what? Yeah, he kisses her, and, and he's holding her, and then he... He's like entranced by her and then he looks in the mirror that's behind her and he sees he's holding this old waterlogged decayed woman and he freaks out. Oh, oh, oh. She starts laughing. And she's laughing at him. Yeah. And then we get we get uh, moments of Danny freaking out because freaking he knows out. what his dad's seeing. Yeah. And he's like spitting up again. What did they tell him he was feeling or <laughs> probably seeing? he was having seizures and he has a medical condition that the family has to deal with. Maybe that would be my guess. It's at this point that Danny reaches out to Dick Halloran again. Yeah. He sends shockwaves across the United States. And we get to see Dick in his house. <laughs> so good. I just love it. He's just sitting on his bed and he just gets this blast from Danny. And he does so much better of a job of showing us that he's feeling and seeing these things. Yeah. Without having to splay his arms across and move his entire body well, backwards. Well, like he's having a heart attack is what it's like in the in the miniseries. It looks ridiculous. Way Melvin Van top. Peebles is a black icon, Kelsey. Is he? He is. He's famous for being a part of the Scatman Brothers. He also is, yes. <laughs> and he was good friends with Jack Nicholson, and he asked Jack Nicholson to to petition for him to get this role because he really wanted the role, and so Kubrick agreed, and they cast him in that role. And he's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> it just looks. It just seems so much more natural. He feels it, and you can see it in his face, and you can see it in his chest. He doesn't have to completely move his entire body. He doesn't have to roll his eyes back. He can You can just see that he's feeling it just by his face. Anyway, at this point, most people would think that Jack would have to come to terms with what he's seen. Absolutely not. <laughs> Next time we see him show up and he's talking to Wendy, he's like, nothing. There wasn't anything. I think he did it to himself. Yeah. Which is not possible. And at this point, <laughs> Wendy just completely denies the fact that it could have been Jack. You know, she's she's accepted the fact that something else happened. Well, because Danny said a woman right. did this to yeah. me. Uh -huh. So she can't. She listens to the facts. Yes. Whereas Jack is ignoring the facts. Yes, very much so. This is around the time when Danny will start saying red rum. Yeah. Do you want to hear about red rum? Well, it's in the book. Right. right. But do you want to hear where it came from? Where King came up with it? Yeah. Sure. So he knew he had a character who was very young, like five years old, was learning how to read. And we get that a lot in the miniseries where he even has to tell his mom to stop giving him the words because he can figure them out on his own. 
Uh, but the idea is there's this relationship here between a kid and his parents where he would ask them about words he didn't know, right? And he knew what he wanted was for Danny to see the word murder and not understand it. But his the problem that he came across was that if Danny saw a word he didn't understand, he would go to his parents and he would go to his mom and say, hey, what's murder? And then red flags fucking everywhere for mom. And it would have completely changed the dynamic of the whole entire story, which is not what he wanted. So he's like, well, what is a way that I can see him see murder and not freak out his mom? So he's like, well, what if it was backwards? What would it look like in a mirror? And so he just spelled it backwards. And he's like, oh, shit, it's it's red rum. And he had no idea. It was all just happenstance that red rum happened to be a reference to alcohol which is a key theme of this story, that was entirely by chance. He just wanted Danny to see murder, but Wendy to not get freaked out. And it is also a part of this relationship of a kid learning how to read and asking his parents when he doesn't know something. So I just thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. I never knew that. Yeah, I just assumed it was a way kind of to scare the parents because he doesn't know what he's seeing. He doesn't know what he's reading. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I always wondered... I don't. I can't remember in the book, but the miniseries makes such a big deal about him wanting to learn to read that it must have been in the book. I always assumed that was because he wanted to connect to his father as and a writer, and he's getting well. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I never even thought about that. But from everything that I've seen in the miniseries, it seems like he mostly wanted to be able to read what red rum meant. Yeah. He, so he wanted to know those words. And then, unfortunately, when he did, it didn't make it, it didn't matter. Uh -huh. But I always thought it was because he wanted to connect with his father. That's really interesting. Well, that's why in in the miniseries he tells his dad, you know, reading's fine, but can you tell mom not to give me the word so quickly? And you know, it's almost like he's telling his dad, "I can figure it out. I'm good at reading, Dad." You know, so yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Once he starts saying red rum, at this point, he's no longer Danny. He says, Danny went, Danny went away, Mrs. Torrance. Yeah. <laughs> Danny's gone away, Mrs. Torrance. I'm now just Tony. Uh-huh. And so Wendy's like, oh, shit, we need to get him out of here. He we won't be Danny again till almost the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Wendy goes to Jack and says, we need to get him out of here. We need to take him to a doctor. And, of course, Jack flips out because his his whole reason is... This is my job. I was hired to do this. It's my responsibility. And if we leave, I will have failed that. I will have not accomplished this thing. This is something that I think this movie does a lot better than the miniseries. Is the, the theme of the pressures of responsibility. Even though we don't actually see him doing any of the responsibilities of yes. the hotel. No, no, no. It's not about that. It's not about oh, how hard it is to fulfill these responsibilities. It's about how he needs to be responsible for taking care of his family, but taking care of his family will prevent him from being able to take care of his family. Like, that contradiction. Do you mean taking care of the hotel means? No, no, I mean taking care of the family. I, that's another thing. The taking care of the hotel is also there, but I mean, like, he needs to be a provider for his family. And if he fucks this up, he cannot provide for his family. 
But what's going to cause him to fuck up is that he needs to take care of his family. So like, it's that contradiction, that position that, especially in that time, a man feels compelled to do, to take care of his family. Now, obviously, it's a very sexist interpretation of responsibility in families, but it is a reality of the time. So there is that. But then there's also the status, the very male thing of having status and not having other males with a higher status than you look down on you which they show in the miniseries they don't show here yeah it's just the pressures of feeling like everything is on you you know that you need to do all these things and it's pressure that he refuses to share with his family until he can use it as a weapon against them which i think is really important you know, I think that kind of pressure needs to be shared with your loved ones. But I, I think this movie does a really good job of showing that stress that could be there in somebody who just can't hack it, you know? So, out of anger, he storms off and goes back to the bar, where there is now quite the shindig going yes. on from 1921. 21, yeah. It's just full of people all dressed up in this pink and gold ballroom pink and gold are my favorite colors oh. and he heads up to the bar he's like looking around and he feels very natural he's not shocked he's not he doesn't feel out of place although he physically is he's wearing 70s clothes and he just walks up to the bar and he asks lloyd for hair of the dog that bitcha which by the way in case you were always curious what hair of the dog that bitcha meant it means the same drink that you had that gave you the hangover in the first place it's a reference to a part of a potion that's supposed to heal you. If it, if it heals dog bites is you need a hair of the dog that bit you. People wake up with a hangover. They drink the same drink they had that night that gave them a hangover. Really what you're doing is you're delaying the hangover. Anyway. So he tries to pay for it. He yeah. tells him your money's no good here. He says, I'm the type of guy who likes to know who's paying for my drinks. And he says, it's not a matter that, of your concern. That doesn't concern you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Drink up, Mr. Thomas. I'm the kind of man likes to know who's buying their drinks, Lloyd. It's not a matter that concerns you, Mr. Torrance. At least not at this point. And as he kind of says, okay, and he steps away to go mingle with people, and that's when he's run into by a butler or a waiter. Who's also named Grady. Yes, so he spills a drink on him, and he's like, oh, shit, I got this all over you, and let's get you to the bathroom and get, get you cleaned up. And Jack's like, oh, I'm I'm more concerned about all the marks you got on you, and he puts his hand on his back, which I fucking love, because it gets more stain yep. on him. It's yep. so good. It's a great moment. And they go into the bathroom. Now, the bathroom seems a little bit out of place. This is where I want to talk about the set design. What Kubrick did is he went through, like, architecture magazines and things like that and just said, that room, that room, that room, And that's what I mean. No, 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 no. Hold on. Mm -hmm. If If he wanted it to be cohesive, all he needed to do was to tell the set people to make it cohesive. He went out of his way to look for specific designs that that juxtapose against each other and seem out of place. Now, the thing about this bathroom is it's that bathroom is from a real place designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, who was active at the time that this party is supposed to take place. So it's not that it's anachronistic, but it's just design wise is out of place. The ballroom is really ornate and flowery, whereas the bathroom is boxy and solid colors white 
red. Straight lines. That's more contribution to the idea that it's supposed to seem disjointed and disconnected. Another thing in this very same scene is that Stanley Kubrick breaks one of the most sacred film rules that exists. And there is no way you can convince me that neither Stanley Kubrick nor John Alcott, who you yourself expressed were great at cinematography, do not know and adhere to the 180 rule. The 180 rule in filming is when two characters are talking, draw an imaginary line between them and stay on one side of that line. So one character is going to be on the left side of the screen looking right and vice versa. You never have a character who, on the, who is on the left side of the screen speaking to the right now be on the right side of the screen speaking left. But he does that. He jumps across them at a particular point in that scene. What some people say is that that represents this is the moment. This is the moment of no return where Jack has gone too far. But Jack is talking with Delbert Grady. And before I mentioned, you need to know the name Charles Grady, a man who is there with his wife and two daughters in the 70s and who killed them with an axe and then himself with a shotgun. He's talking to Grady and he's like, Grady? Grady? Again, Delbert Grady. Didn't you used to be the caretaker here? He's like, no, I've never been. You've always been the caretaker. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. You've always been the right. caretaker, sir. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how... I love the way he talks. Yeah. Delbert Grady has a wife and two daughters, but this is not the same Delbert Grady. Who he had to correct. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, this is the 20s. It's absolutely not the same one who has, who killed his family 50 years later. Or is it? Right? Like, that's the point. There's the famous ending of this movie, which we can talk about now, where Jack's in the photo from the 20s. Which we're going to do for our wedding. Oh, I, got, I love that. <laughs> the idea is, again, what Kubrick is representing is history repeating itself. The cyclical nature of violence and violent feelings and that's why there are anachronisms in time anachronisms in which i know anachronisms in time is redundant but juxtaposition of style breaking uh, very important film rules which are designed to allow your audience to feel comfortable and follow the action easily the architecture is all out of whack like this is all intentionally designed to blend things together in your mind and confuse you as to where you are in time and space. This is all very intentional because the violence is always there. And it always will be. It always was there. What time it is, what place it is, doesn't fucking matter. That danger is inherent and repetitious. And it has always been and it will always come back. That's what he's talking about here. So... Whether you see it as Jack gets absorbed into the picture by the hotel, as Roger Ebert saw, or you think that he's a reincarnation of the same person, 
from the 20s, like Charles Grady is of Delbert Grady. No, it, I just always it assumed. It doesn't matter. I just always assumed he was sucked in just like Jack gets No, and in. that's that's totally fine. Either way you interpret that, it doesn't matter. The same theme still stands either way, which is something I really like. You can have a different opinion and the theme is the same. So it's totally inviting you to think either way. He also, yes, as you say, stresses that just as Delbert needed to correct his family, Jack needs to correct his. Yes. And they use the N-word. Yes. Talking about how Danny is attempting to bring in Halloran. Yeah, and in the remake, they use the term darky. Yeah, because they couldn't put that on television. Right. But I do like... Do you like Jack's response? He just repeats. He's like, ugh. <laughs> like, did you just say that? <laughs> you know, like, what? <laughs> and when he says to him, you killed your daughters and your wife, he says, I don't have any recollection of that at all. Right. And see, we're, we're, we're in this sort of time where has it happened yet? Has it not happened yet? Like, you do not know. And that's but part of But he says, I had to correct them. Right. Right, so which would imply he did. So he's aware of what he did. This is my point. This is exactly my point. When he tells him he's trying to bring in somebody else, he says, it's his mother. She interferes. He says, oh, I understand. My own daughters tried to burn this place down. Because they just don't understand how special it is. But you yep. and I, we do. Yep. Dick Halloran, meanwhile, calls the authorities there in Boulder and says, hey, could you baby call up to them and just make sure that they're okay through the radio? And he's like, well, we tried several times. We couldn't get anybody to, to, to answer. Well, we also see that Jack takes apart the radio. Yeah. So that they cannot talk to anybody. Yeah, he also, we don't see it, but at this time he also destroys the snowcat. Dick Halloran is then shown flying in and he gets more shockwaves being sent to him from Danny. Yeah. When he gets there, he calls ahead to make sure that he can get a snow cat to, to go up the mountain. And he knows the guy who works there because he, he, he's Right, they work there. together, yeah. And he's like, he's like, why do you have to go up to the hotel? And he goes, well, to be perfectly honest with you, they've turned out to be completely unreliable assholes yeah it's <laughs> so good larry just between you and me we got a very serious problem with the people who are taking care of the place they turned out to be completely unreliable assholes it's really funny Olman asked me to check on them yeah uh -huh. this is when he sees the red bug which i don't understand so while all this is going on wendy is now on her own. Adamant to get Danny down the mountain. So she goes to talk to Jack to tell him, I'm taking him down no matter what. But also she's terrified that there's somebody else in this hotel and Jack has refused to deal with it and he's gone kind of fanatic. And so she's now walking around the hotel with a baseball bat, terrified of what she might come across at any turn. And then she finds... The typewriter sitting at the table and all the pages that are printed. And this is the famous all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Before you ask, no, that is not in the book. Neither are the twins, by the way. Yeah. Margaret Adams. She in the credits, she appears as the director's secretary. She is the one who typed up all of those pages. 
all of those pages were manually typed. Apparently, you can see her doing it in one of the documentaries. So all of those are real, but she comes across and she sees it in the typewriter and then in the uh, the paper box where his manuscript is supposed to be. And it's just all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Makes Jack a dull boy. Yes, yeah. Now, for the other versions in other languages, they had to change the phrase. Because it wasn't an idiom they had heard. Right, yeah. So here are what they are. In Italian, it's il mattino alloro in bocca. He who wakes up early makes a golden day, which is a, an Italian idiom. In German, it's was du hota kannst besorgen das Verscheibe nicht auf morgen, which is never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. In Spanish, it was no por mucho mad madrugar. Amanece mas temprano, which is rising early, will not make dawn sooner. It's interesting. <laughs> For the French version, it was un tien va mieux que deux, tu I think is how you pronounce it. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So just interestingly that they had to make different versions for each of the the translations. Speaking of, we'll be talking about here's Johnny a little bit later. Yes. So when Jack walks in. Yes, if she likes it. Yeah, what do you think I love of it? when he first walks in. He just wa he sees what she's looking at. He walks straight up to it and he kind of flips through the pages and has this little smile on his face. Uh -huh. Do you like it? <laughs> it's difficult to tell. It it's hard because it's like, okay, so clearly he's been just crazy since the beginning because he's been typing since the beginning. Not necessarily this, though. But I think the idea is, yes, this has been going on for a very long time. I think the, the point is, is that he's been spacing out while he's been typing. Right? And it's just, this is what's been coming out. I just, I... I like it better in the book and in the miniseries where he just kind of forgets about his... In the book, he's trying to write a play. And I I like it better when he just kind of forgets about it. And because the, he's so fascinated with the history of the hotel. Exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. And he, he becomes distracted by that. So the idea that he's been distracted and then is just writing bullshit... It sounds interesting. No, but that sounds fun. But see, that's the thing is, I think a lot of people found this to be absolutely terrifying. The madness that you would have to have to write that phrase over and over again that long, and this whole time when you thought everything was okay, like that's terrifying to people. And the fact that he sees it and is like, "Do you like it? How do you like it?" <laughs> You know, like he knows there's something a little bit off and he doesn't care. He knows that Wendy is terrified and it kind of amuses him. And so he's chasing her around, slowly walking after her and she's backing up and swinging the bat. And she keeps coming to points where she needs to like turn because she can't go any further. And then she gets to the stairs and starts going up to the stairs. Now, this scene, I think, is the one that's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most takes of a single scene. But... Many people believe that it is not true. So apparently it's 127 times. That's the record for the most takes of a single scene. Garrett Brown, who I mentioned earlier, says it was more like 35 to 45 times. <laughs> but either way, he does refilm a lot of scenes. And this is one of them that he filmed over and over and over again. And he's trying to explain to her that like, 
listen, I'm not going to hurt you. And he says, you didn't let me finish. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the fuck in. <laughs> I'm just going to bash them right the fuck, the fuck in. in. And it's so good. And she freaks out. And as he like reaches for her, she smacks him over the head with the bat finally and he falls down the stairs and she is freaking out and so now he's knocked out and she doesn't know what to do so she takes him into the giant kitchen and it looked super real when she hit him oh yeah totally like it's rare for a hit to like and they filmed the whole thing like they didn't cut away they filmed him right falling what the modern the thing would be is you cut into and out of the hit right so you film everything up until a couple frames or a frame before contact actually happens. And then you pick up from another angle right after the contact happens. That's how a lot of the action is filmed nowadays. The attack is implied in the edit. Now him actually falling down the stairs is a different shot. You're but right. they don't cut away right. when she swings Which and makes hits it him. feel more real. Yes. Now... In modern time, it's used to be more frenetic. It's used to take out and imply really as much violence as possible so you can get a PG-13 rating, you know, and it's not done for the best reasons. I can see where there is a use in some cases, but it's really overused nowadays. But back then it was, no, we're just going to show this shit. She just hits him with this bat and we're going to film it from a particular angle using particular equipment and... It's going to look real, and I love it. And he tumbles down. She drags him into the kitchen and puts him in their walk-in pantry. Oh, my God. When he starts to wake up. Yes. That's so scary. Yes. And like, Dan is get with out, get her get out. helping her do this, right? In, no, in the that's movie in the version. Remake. Okay, yeah. Because that added an additional sense of tension when Danny was there. Mm-hmm. But he's waking up as she's on the other side of him inside the pantry, pulling him in. She needs to cross over him, but he is so fucking out of it. He's just reaching for her and he doesn't even realize what's going on. And she closes the pantry and locks it on him. He tries to get her to open the door by pretending that he's hurt really bad, tries to cry. And she says, well, you know what? I'm just gonna, I'm going to call down or I'll go and get help and I'll bring it back. And he says, Oh, Wendy, yeah. You've got a surprise coming to you. Uh-huh. Wendy. <laughs> yes. You've got a big surprise coming to you. <laughs> You're not going anywhere. <laughs> Go check out the snow cat in the radio and you see what I mean. and she goes and finds out he has not only destroyed the radio which we saw him do he has also destroyed the snowcat which we did not see him do yeah so she's fucked it's right around this time that she goes in to find danny screaming red rum well she's asleep yeah and he's written it in lipstick on a door and so she sees it in the mirror and sees that he's been mm-hmm. saying murder this whole time yeah and that's when jack comes bursting through now this does happen in the book and i don't know how i feel about it about the fact that the door is open from the outside yes 
So bothers me. Yes. So here's the thing about that. I actually I, I wrote it down. I wrote, I mean, aside from the fact that The Shining has been represented as definitely real, we also know the place is haunted because Jack gets out of the pantry. It's not just him going crazy. Now, I wrote in parentheses, is it possible that Danny let him out? I don't think so. They've been growing stronger. They're feeding off of the totally. family. Totally. And, and I so think they are I agree. gaining strength. I agree. I think I think like logistically it's possible, but I don't think character wise it would make any sense. And you're right. This is the this is the the point where the hotel is at its absolute strongest. It is physically manipulating things now. But it's like at that point, then why don't you just fucking kill Danny? I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I don't think they're that strong yet. They move a little latch and they give him an axe because I, I, I believe this is the case. The next time we see Jack, he just has the axe. We never see him find or grab the axe. Yeah, in the original, it's a croquet mallet, and it's and they just talk left. about croquet. It's a just lot. left for him. There. Yeah. So. So he's running around looking for them in the hotel with the axe. She takes him. He into now the... has a limp because he's yes. been hit. Yeah, he fell down the stairs and he like he sprained his ankle or something, and so he's walking around with a limp. And they're getting further and further into their apartment in the hotel, and then ultimately into the bathroom. And he is smashing down the doors with his axe. Now they made this is kind of a famous story. They made prop doors that are designed to be broken easier than the real doors that they would have been. But Jack Nicholson, like my father, was a volunteer fireman. And so he was just demolishing these prop doors way too easy. Because he knew how to axe down a door. What we see is a real volunteer fireman really breaking down a real door with an axe. How interesting. It's so fucking cool. Because they had to revert back to actual doors. Because he was just destroying them them really easily. <laughs> According to Shelley Duvall, it took them three days to film this scene, and they went through 60 doors. Which is absolutely insane. Also, famously, when he's able to get his face in, and then his hand after that, he says, here's Johnny. Here's Johnny! That was... An ad lib on his part. Yeah, wasn't it just that he did he done it so many times? He was just trying different things. Yes, kind of like uh, Freddy Krueger, and that's when we get the whole welcome, welcome to, to prime, prime time, time bitch. bitch yes, because they have exactly. to they have to do the same scene over and over again. So he just mixes it up a little bit every time, and he gives Kubrick a little something different every single time. What it's supposed to be, which is a term that they don't use in the movie at all, is take your medicine. That's the that's what the line oh. is supposed to be. Oh, King's writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I will defend Stephen King till the ends of the earth, but I cannot defend the fact that he loves to give certain phrases. Phrases. To uh, what's it called? Your 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 Idioms. catchphrase. Yeah. Uh-huh. He gives catchphrases to to characters, and I understand why he does it, but most of the time it feels forced. Yes, I agree. And so in the miniseries, he just says "boo." sticks his head in and he goes boo oh no i've heard specifically that they did that because king hated 
here's Johnny so much. Yeah. They did that kind of like as a slap in the face to Kubrick, just like the red uh, bug was a slap in the face right. to King. Well, interestingly. Uh, that's what I've heard. I don't, I don't know when they said that. Jack's full name is John Daniel Torrance. He is a Johnny. So I just think that that's kind of funny. Uh, but there are countries out there that don't have the Johnny Carson show, which is what this is a reference to. Growing up, I had no idea. So until my parents told me. So in the Spanish version, he's literally just saying, "Here's Jack, aquí está Jack, aquí está Jack." Aquí está Jack. Because his character's name is Jack, but really, actually, his character's name is John. So I just think that that's kind of funny. It was. Uh, it's in. You know how the AFI makes all those lists. The American Film Institute, not. Davy Havoc's band. Yeah, what does that stand for? A fire inside. Mm-hmm. It's out of a hundred. It's it's sixty eight on the list of great movie quotes of all time. Premier Magazine put it as number thirty six as the hundred hundred greatest movie lines of all time. This is like really fucking famous. If The Shining is famous for certain things that you can pull out and say it's famous for, here's Johnny, the Blood Elevator, the Twins. Uh, we didn't talk about the blood elevator at all. It doesn't bring it up when it happened the second time. Right. I mean, because it happens to Wendy as she's searching the hotel later. But they got it. it the trailer is like 50% or more the blood coming out of the elevator intercut with like Danny being scared and stuff like that. That is what the original trailer is. And the MPAA wouldn't let him do it because it was so gory. All the blood. So Kubrick told them it's not blood, it's rusty water. They're like, oh, 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 okay then. And they let him put it out there. He just straight up lied to them. And they let him make that his trailer, which I think is pretty funny. That's nuts. (laughs) But the NBA is bullshit anyway. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Anyway, the kid looks genuinely scared throughout this scene, which is great. Yeah. Shelley Duvall looks absolutely petrified, which is good. Because if she didn't, and if they didn't have that loud music, uh-huh. it would be real awkward. Yeah. It's, well, and it goes also, on for so long. There's you know? also things like his, his, yeah, it is very long. His axe comes through the door and then she screams and they have these like violin strikes where it's just like, bang, bang. not like Psycho. Not like Psycho at all. But it's timed perfectly with one of her screams. And I love that every single time. It just works so well for me. But the point is, is that Shelley Duvall, Wendy, is alone in the bathroom because she sent Danny out the bathroom window because there is this like this like uh, snow burr kind of like coming up the side of the hotel. Which that really happens there. Yeah. It was like that when I got there and it was so cool. I desperately wanted to take a picture of myself as if I was sliding down it, but it was just so cold. I couldn't, I, we couldn't handle being outside. Yeah. Because it's not like we were in G, in ski, like, clothing. Yeah. You know, like, we were just, we we were basically just dressed to get from one area to the mm-hmm. next, and we weren't planning on spa- staying outside for very long. So, it was so, so cold. I, we couldn't, I couldn't take the time to yeah. take, like, good pictures, but it really does do that. And in fact, it does it so much that they put this long thing above where the entrance is because if it didn't the entrance would be covered in snow right yeah uh-huh. 
So it's really interesting. Yeah. But she couldn't fit through the window. So she stuck in, but Danny got outside. She's freaking out and she's holding this uh, knife and he reaches in through the hole he just created and see, she slashes at his hand. And he's like, ah, and he's like, it, like you believe that he's in pain. It's really fantastic. But he ends up turning and going the other way. Uh, is this because Delbert tells him that what's his face is here? Yes. Or he hears that Halloran's here. One or the other. I can't remember which. Um, Something tells him that Halloran is there. Right. But Halloran's inside going, hello, is anybody here? You know? Hello? And, and so, so Jack gives up on Wendy and says, I'll come back for you, basically. And then goes and looks for Halloran. And we just follow Halloran inside for a while, walking around, looking for somebody. And there are these long kind of one-er shots where the camera is following Halloran, which is why it's so surprising, because you have this one-er shot, which the set and the shot is basically static. It's just dollying forward, or rather using the steady cam and pushing forward. And then Jack comes out of nowhere, which meant he had to be standing there the entire time, because you don't see him come from off the screen. He comes from behind a pillar. That's been on screen the entire shot. And he just swings the axe right into Halloran's chest, which also resonates with Danny. And we see Danny's face again. It's another moment where we get a close-up of his face freaking out. So, Kelsey, Dick Halloran dies. What do you think? He shows up and he immediately dies. After all this getting there, just immediately dead. I think it's a waste. And I don't... I mean, I suppose... They wanted to have more deaths in it. Yes. So that is one of my reasons. Somebody needed to die because this is the literally the only on-screen death in the entire movie. Yeah. So I assume that's why they did it, but it just seems like a waste of a character, especially so, since Scatman Carruthers did such a good job with it. Right. But we care about Scatman, so I think that lends to our emotional connection to what's going on. I think also they needed to get a snowcat up there. Yes. But they didn't need Scatman for anything else. They don't need to set up for a sequel with Dr. Sleep. Uh, where, <laughs> Which is why I'm so confused why they're going to do right, so much with the original. They're kind of, I, I don't know a lot about it, but it looks like they're using kind of a combination of the original book slash miniseries and the Shining movie, Kubrick's version. Because Scatman plays an important part of Danny's life. Yeah. After this moment. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he's even in Doctor Sleep, but he talks about him. No, he's dead him, by the time it starts. But yes. he talks about him and how much of an impact he had yes. on him. But anyway, Kubrick doesn't care about that. And the right. sequel hadn't even been written yet anyway. Right. So he doesn't need to worry about a sequel. He doesn't, like, Scatman at this point has served his purpose and now he's superfluous. And the idea that he would get hit on the head multiple times with a croquet mallet and not die is nuts. Yeah. So why not? Why isn't he? I mean, people survive expendable? crazy shit sometimes. Sure. But it's rare. <laughs> yeah. And and it it informs Danny of just exactly how serious everything is now. Dick Halloran, somebody you liked and who was supposed to be your savior, is dead. Things are fucking dire you gotta rely on yourself yeah and so it's also what the character would have done i mean if jack is there trying to kill his son and wife why wouldn't he have killed dick halloran well because in the book he thought he had 
Right. That's what we're saying. Right, right. He, he but, hit him but why do and we he need... figured he was dead. Right, but why do we need the extra added thing of, no, but he's really alive. Why the fuck would somebody like Kubrick care to give you that? Oh, and then the guy we thought was dead is actually alive at the end, so you can be happy. It's not his job to give you a happy ending. This this movie has a fucking happy ending, but it's not the happy ending that you want. You're so focused on what happens to Jack that you don't really consider it a happy ending. And that's the point. It's kind of unclear in that way and unsettling. But anyway, I think it's totally fine that Dick died, but I totally get why people think it's kind of a waste. Because in the larger scheme of things, when telling a larger story, more faithful to the original novel... It's kind of important that he survives. But Kubrick is using King's novel as a basis for something else. He doesn't need any of the other baggage. And what would happen in any other movie to raise the stakes and what the character of Jack would do is kill Halloran. So Halloran's dead. Wendy's worried because she doesn't know what happened to Jack. And so she starts navigating the hotel looking for Danny. And hoping she comes across Danny before she comes across Jack. But Danny's outside already. And Jack follows him outside. Danny boy! <laughs> and, oh, Danny boy, <laughs> the pipes, the pipes are calling. Anyway, Danny runs into the hedge maze at full speed. Meanwhile, Jack's limping around behind him. Now, they really did build this hedge maze in Elstree Studios in London. And it was burning up hot because they're wearing these jackets for the snow and there are all these lights and it is so hot. And they would the crew and cast would make maps so they could figure out where they are at any given time. And one of the problems is, is that how they filmed following Danny because they're working with a little kid is they just got the Steadicam team and they just told Danny to just fucking run. And they followed behind him. So by the time they were done with the shots, they were like, where are we? And they had no idea where they are in this maze. <laughs> it's not the same exact maze that you see from the aerial shot, but it is still a maze. And apparently Kubrick was so shitty to them about this, about how they would constantly get lost. Like he would make fun of them. Like he would laugh at them and stuff that they put him in the maze the last day of shooting. And he was in there for an hour he, before he could find his way out. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. And he that was good-natured about putting himself through that. <laughs> How do I get out of this maze? Left, right, right, left. Yes, yeah, like in the guest. <laughs> <laughs> so she, Wendy, inside is just seeing visions now because that's how strong that the ghosts in the hotel are getting that somebody who doesn't have the shining at all is starting to see stuff. And she sees... Well, there is a slight implication that she might have a touch of it in the book and in this miniseries. But on the scale of, like, shining power, it's it's Danny, it's Halloran, it's Jack, and then it's Wendy at the bottom. So now the fact that up at this point in the climax, Wendy is starting to see it, that's how much more powerful they've, they've gone down. The entire list of people that could potentially see anything, and they finally reached Wendy. And she sees... Uh, the famous dog bear mask Doesn't scene. Doesn't look like a dog. It never looked like a dog to it's me. It's just animal. When I was a kid, I thought it was a fucking pig. Yeah, no, everyone says it's something different. And that's fine. That's not the point. The fact that it's a dog is so not important. 
It has fucking nothing to do with what's going on. It's important if you care about the lore of the fucking hotel that they don't bother to get into. Okay, okay, but Kelsey, at all. Kelsey, if the book made it a bear instead of a dog, would anything have changed? If the book did it. The fact that it's a dog, I'm saying, doesn't contribute to the lore at all. Just somebody in an animal mask. It just seems odd to me uh-huh. that they would pick a dog mask very specifically that very little resembles a dog. Right, and now people are still fucking talking about it because of how unsettling it is. That's the point. Instead of, oh, what's that dog doing in that guy's lap? It's, what the fuck is he dressed as? It took me years to even consider the fact that he was supposed to be giving a blowjob to another dude. Yeah. I never would have seen that. We know from the book that that's what's happening. It's just odd. It's like, you're a dude in a mask you on just, your knees. You it just know doesn't that make any something, sense. You know that there's something weird going on there. And that's the entire point. The dog looks up and looks over. And the dude who is supposed to be the original owner of the hotel or the owner from the 20s mm-hmm. who's who's getting this blowjob. Uh, later, she sees a guest who says, uh, great party, isn't it? And he's covered that's in blood. That's right out of the book. Great yeah. party, isn't it? Although I don't think Wendy's the one who sees that. I don't know. I think Halloran maybe sees that. Or or Danny does. I can't remember which. Then she sees all these skeletons. Yeah, and she sees the time. lobby, like, what it would look like. I have a hard time saying skeleton. <laughs> I always want to say skeletons. Skeletons, yeah. Um, but it's, like, covered in cobwebs and everything, and there are these skeletons sitting in the chairs in the lobby. The same chair where Jack was reading a playgirl in the very beginning of the movie before his interview. It was a playgirl? Yes, it was. Okay. (laughs) So it makes you wonder, is this what it really looks like? It's just showing people something else. Exactly. Probably not, but it's presenting that question. Well, because Danny and Jack are able to see them as human beings. Yeah. uh She sees them for what they really are. They're just ghosts. Right. They're dead people. (laughs) Right. And I think that's the, the, you hear that a lot, like when there's especially supernatural, is like, if you can see beyond the mask, you see what they really look like and evil people look like demons and stuff like that. But everyone else thinks they're just normal people. This is what the hotel actually is underneath its mask. And I like that they focus on that more in the miniseries. Uh I, I love it when in the miniseries, he's talking to a woman that's dead. Yeah. As he's talking to her, small things will happen to her face that will make her appear dead. Yeah. And he kind of notices it, but he also kind of doesn't. And I really enjoy that because it's like, if he wanted to, he could see what's there, but he doesn't want to. Yeah. Oh, he's seduced by it and that's okay, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway. This is when she sees the elevator full of blood. Yes. Which earlier Danny saw. As a vision, but she's seeing this literally happen. Now, meanwhile, Jack is facing up against Danny in the hedge maze. And Danny gets the bright idea. He, he's put enough distance between the two of them because Jack's limping that he has enough time to, and it does kind of, he doesn't have this much time. Yes. I love what he does. Right. I think it's so cool. I don't necessarily believe that a kid could come up with it, but I love it. I You you can't convince me he had that kind of time. Yeah, it does. What's the term? Stress credulity or whatever that he, he walks past 
a turn and then puts his own feet, like steps in his own footprints, walking backwards, jumps off to the side and then covers up where he jumped. So Jack will follow his footprints past where Danny has already gone. And Danny can make his way out of the maze without his father following him. Because the whole time Jack is following the footsteps. Danny's going in any direction he can think of. Jack's following the footsteps. So he's always going to be behind him until this happens. We even see Jack like turn around and try to follow the footsteps the other way. And he gets really confused and he's very obviously flustered. And now he's starting to get like worried. And he's calling out to Danny, not so he can kill him, but for help. Like, where are you? I I'm lost. I have never known that he was actually saying words there until we just watched it with the uh, yeah, subtitles on. Yeah, because it sounds like he's... That's all I ever thought he yeah, was doing. Uh -huh. I thought he had gone insane, and I thought he was just yelling because I'm lost and I'm fucked. Yeah. <laughs> But apparently he's calling out for help. He even begs Wendy, please help me. Yeah. So Danny gets outside just as Wendy is getting outside too and they meet and they get in the snow cat as jack hears them and he's freaking out because he's lost he doesn't know how to get through and they drive off and then cut to immediately it's the morning and jack is frozen solid in the hedge maze now this Huge is disappointment of an ending because the end of the book and the miniseries shows a change in him and we don't get that so either. i had seen the shinning from the Simpsons before. Do you want to get seed? <laughs> yes. Boy, you read my thoughts. You've got the shinning. You mean shining. Shh. You want to get sued? It's really good. It's one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes of the Simpsons. One of the very first ones. Yeah. And, you know, it has a lot of the same plot beats and stuff like that, but it's comedic. The, the whole episode ends where they're like, well, at least we have TV and they're out in the cold and they're all watching this portable TV. And then it cuts to them frozen watching the TV still. And that was always really funny to me and effective for me. I'm like, oh, what a great, fantastic ending. And then I saw The Shining. And so, like, part of me was already primed to like that, I think. No, when I first saw it, I loved it as an ending. But knowing what it could have been is something completely different. And this is the way Stephen King describes the differences. It's fire and ice. Right? In the book, the hotel explodes in a blaze of fire. They've been making a huge deal about the boiler this yeah. whole time, which they don't do in the movie. Right. Meanwhile, the movie ends with Jack frozen solid. Now, I think the... Freezing is important because in this version, it is important that the hotel isn't destroyed. Because again, like I said before, the violence doesn't stop. It's a cycle and it will always happen again. The hotel needs to live on, which is why it's important at the end of the miniseries that they're remaking it, starting it up again, uh, refurbishing it. 
but destroying the hotel stops that cycle and then you're just supposed to wonder oh is it gonna come back with when it gets refurbished not destroying the hotel reinforces the idea that this cycle of violence never fucking ends and so we push in on the photograph of the 1921 new year's eve party and we see fourth of july Fourth of July? It's the Fourth of July ball, which makes sense oh, okay. when you consider the fact that it's a summer hotel. Right. You're right. You're, <laughs> oh, God, you're so right. Thank you for correcting me. And we push in on it and we see that it's Jack's face. Now, that was airbrushed over the top of a real photograph. That's a real old timey photo. We're going to remake that in our yeah. wedding. Excited. And, uh, and that's the end of the movie. We talked a little bit about cinematography. And we talked very briefly about whether or not any of it is real. Go back through and watch. I'm not going to dive in as deep as you possibly can. This is not an analysis that I would spend hours on. I mean, yes, we went through the entire plot and we've been recording for hours. But this one fact I think you could spend hours on analyzing every single shot and going through the movie. But the movie very intentionally switches between objective and subjective camera angles in order to confuse you of is this real or isn't this real so when you have a an objective camera angle where it's outside the views of the individual characters barring any other information we're given if we're just given this shot the implication is everything we see is really happening in the context of the story if it's a point of view shot or we're looking at somebody straight on which we get a lot of in this movie you can't guarantee that Right, Because it could be muddied by the perceptions of that individual character, like in the bar scene. But there are a lot of things, like we get the head-on of Jack at the bar, and then a head-on of Lloyd, which is implied to be Jack's point of view. And we're like, oh, he's seeing things now. But then Lloyd leans forward, and the camera moves back, and Jack's in the shot. This isn't Jack's point of view. This is a subjective camera. Sorry. This is an objective camera angle. So is Lloyd real or isn't he within the context of the movie? It plays around and it goes back and forth between objective and subjective perspectives with the camera. And then sometimes implies that the camera is a character. It is intentionally trying to confuse you as to whether any of this is real. And it's intentionally trying to make you uncomfortable because i've it, always assumed it was the hotel watching him yeah no no that's I'm, I'm not saying that it that it that it's not but the point is is that you can't rely on things that you normally rely on as a moviegoer to know whether things are real or not i think that's really interesting uh the, the same thing happens with with danny when he sees the twins where it's implied that it's a it's a point of view shot when he sees them and then we get a subjective shot and they're not there um, but then they are in one of them when the camera's behind him it's i guess i just don't notice that kind of shit yeah it just doesn't affect me at all kubrick and john alcott he also does a thing that one of my actual top five directors david fincher does which is he does a really good job of following the action with the camera when the characters aren't moving, the camera's not moving. When the characters are moving, the camera's moving, and it follows the characters. But you've said that it's, you even said that it sometimes it loses track of the characters. Yes, because 
what what's happening there is it's centering normally is it's centering the focus on the characters and what they're doing and you're not supposed to be focusing on the camera you're fo supposed to be focusing on the characters and their actions and it really pinpoints them it locks you into those things that's what that that is about and when it deviates from that it's important and it's obvious and that's what implies that the camera is its own entity now and not you're not supposed to be focusing on the character you're supposed to be thinking about the camera is something else that's right behind the character and it gives you this sense of unease that guess, you wouldn't have if it just followed the character all you'd be thinking about is the character i just never picked up on that nothing about that scared me i just read a lot about that kind of stuff but what i'm saying is that like if it didn't affect me right was it successful? I didn't even notice a lot of that. Uh-huh. It's not the stuff that you're paying attention to, but it's there for the people that are. And the people, and some a lot of the times that happens subconsciously, and you don't even realize it, you know? Do you want to talk about Room 237 a little bit? Sure. So Room 237 is a documentary. It's a collection of all these crazy theories about the making of The Shining, including that Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing, that it's a message about... <laughs> Uh, the treatment of Native Americans, that there's all sorts of crazy theories in Room 237. What people I, I see repeatedly don't seem to get is that the documentary is not about the movie and what it was really trying to say. The documentary is about highlighting these nutso theories and about how ridiculous they are. The documentary does not... So if not, you agree with any of these, you're nutso. I agree. That's what you just said. Yes. If you think Kubrick faked the moon landing and he was trying to tell everyone in The Shining, you are out of your gourd. I am saying definitively. If you think the moon landing is fake, you're already a little off. We literally did not have the technology back then. Even the military didn't have that technology. The kind of lights you would need to fake the moon landing were fucking impossible in 1969. <laughs> We could fake the moon landing now, but not then. And why would Kubrick want to share that in The Fucking Shining? He wasn't even the one that was picking the fucking wardrobes. Because, oh, Danny wears a, 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 a sweater that has the Apollo craft on it. He wasn't the one picking the outfits. But he's, he's the Lord God Kubrick and he's as, as saying everything in his film. Nothing gets past his eye. I'm not saying it didn't get past him. I'm saying he didn't select it. There's a difference between those things. And again, I don't think he's Lord God Kubrick. I think this movie is a fucking masterpiece. But I don't think it is just because of Kubrick. I think there's a lot of shit that goes on with Kubrick that's pretentious as fuck. And that people like him just because he's Kubrick. Yes, I totally see where you're coming from there. But... This movie in particular, I think, is his absolute best. I fucking love it. Anyway, Room 237, you can watch it because it's very entertaining, but all the theories in it are absolute, utter hogwash. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for, as we said earlier, seeing this version before seeing the miniseries, before reading the book, because I know a lot of people that saw this movie because they loved the book and hated it. Mm -hmm. Oh, my parents detested this movie when they uh -huh. saw it mick garris who directed the the television series 
same thing. He was so excited about the, about this particular version because he loved the book. And he came out and he's like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> but then of his own admission, he's like, over time, I've, I've come to terms with the fact that these are two completely separate things. And I love the movie now. It's not an interpretation of the book. That's not what it's supposed to be, which is why he was really jazzed about being able to actually do that when he did the miniseries. So you just need to accept the fact that this is not here for you if you just want to see moving picture version of book. Like, if that's what you're looking for, that's what the miniseries is there for. That's not what Kubrick's movie is about. And then, unfortunately, they made the miniseries. Look, there's it's some not things that the miniseries bad. does right. There are some things it does really well, <laughs> but it is absolutely it's a television a, miniseries. It's a television miniseries, and I get. If you've that... seen The Stand, if you've seen Rose Red, you know what hey! we're in for. I liked Rose Red. <laughs> I know what you do, but I mean, like I, I totally understand why Kubrick wants people to make miniseries because it's the only way to include all of the all of the information but so why can't he learn that they have no money yeah and that they're just i have written down somewhere how much the the movie cost to make or the miniseries cost to make we didn't talk about the ending and how it originally was longer and it had an additional scene that actually released and then Kubrick took it out after the movie was released. Oh. So here's what happens. We get the shot of Jack's body. And instead of the hotel scene with him being in the picture, we see policemen at the hotel. We see a hospital. Wendy's there. Danny's there. Wendy is the patient. And Danny's just playing around in the waiting room. Ullman shows up. And he talks to Wendy and he says, we can't find your husband anywhere. They never found his body. Did they look through the maze? Because if they didn't, <laughs> their first guest of the summer has a big surprise waiting for yeah, them. Right? When he leaves, Ullman gives Danny a ball. And it's the same ball that was in the hotel that rolled towards him on the carpet. Oh, all kinds of implications there. Yes. Ullman laughs at Danny, like cheerfully, but also maybe sinisterly, and then leaves, and then we get the photo shot. What do you think? Again, I wish that they would clearly say, we checked the maze. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't mention that, my, immediately th- my immediate thought is, oh God. Maybe they did. <laughs> a child is going to find a dead Jack Torrance. Maybe they did. Sitting there. There are a few other things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about how Kubrick decided to do the movie. He wanted to do a horror movie. And he wanted to do somebody else's idea. So he started reading books. And his secretary tells the story about how it was a regular occurrence. She'd hear loud thumps in his office. What he was doing was he was he had a collection of horror mov- horror novels in his office. And he would pull one down. And he would start to read it, and then he would throw it across the room. No, that's, this sucks. And she would just hear regularly, thump. And then some time would go by, and then thump. And it's just him throwing books across his office. Until one time, 
she was worried that maybe he had a heart attack or something was wrong because she stopped hearing thumps. That was Kubrick reading the entirety of The Shining and knowing that this was the book that he wanted to make, which I think is a fun little story about how he really enjoyed the book. Again, that's why I'm so confused. Right. That's why would he do something completely different? Because well, he still wants to make his own movie. From what I've heard, he even originally wanted to shoot at the Stanley. And he sent location scouts out yes. there. And they explained to him, it's not that big. Uh-huh. You'd have to do a lot of work with your shots because if you don't want anyone to tell that Estes is literally across the street, yeah. we would have to do some work there. And it looks like this. And he looked at it and he was just like, well, that's not very scary looking. Yeah. Whereas I totally, I completely understand why he would look at pictures of the Timberline Lodge and would look at that and say, that looks more... Foreboding? Yes. It's beautiful, but it can be ominous looking. Mm -hmm. And so I would understand that. But it's like, if you loved the book so much, why would you do so much to change it? It's not just taking things out because it doesn't work for camera or... You got, you've got to cut a lot out. It, it, he was just straight up changing certain things. Well, I mean, things. if you got to, if you got to cut a lot of stuff already, and those things won't be as well supported, and thereby not as effective as they are in the book, why not make something that's more effective for film? And you cannot tell me that this version of The Shining is not more effective for film than what is in the book. The book is great for the book. I love the book. I've read the book. It is not built for a two and a half hour movie. I understand. I'm just saying that, like, I just will never understand his decision for Wendy Torrance. Mm -hmm. It seems so, so completely opposite of the character mm -hmm. you get in the book. Well, he treats Jack differently, and so he needed a different Wendy. A little bit. Yeah, he does make him crazy from the get-go. And yes, that's frustrating. But like I said, at the point where he's supposed to be crazy, he's perfect. Mm-hmm. And but it if, just if, it just feels like Kubrick was a misogynist asshole and, and didn't he probably want was. and didn't want a strong female character. There is a fantastic photograph of Stanley Kubrick, black and white, standing in front of the remains of the Elstree Studios version of the hotel, which did in fact burn down in an accidental fire. And it's him standing in front of the burned rubble and he's laughing. Because it's so funny to him. The irony being that his version of the hotel actually burned down in real life when it wasn't going to burn down in his movie. And it did in the source material. I just I think that's kind of funny. It's a really kind of adorable, charming picture of him laughing. The set would catch on fire occasionally. <laughs> just in general. Because they have the, this giant... Lobby slash foyer slash lounge. It is a huge, huge yeah. set. And these giant windows. And it needed to look like it was snowing outside. So they had these intense lights that were coming uh, through the window to make it look like it was so bright outside. And the set would catch fire after it had already been the completed filming. So I think this is what caused the set to burn down. This is the same studio where they filmed... Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Well of the Souls tomb. It's also where scenes from Empire Strikes Back were filmed. 
that same year that The Shining was filmed. Raiders of the Lost Ark was 81. Empire Strikes Back was 80, just like The Shining. And they used a lot of the same snow, apparently. A lot of the same fake snow for both of them. Because, you know, obviously Hoth, a lot of snow going on there. Stephen King visited both sets where he met Irvin Kirshner, who was the director of Empire Strikes Back. And that's where he got the name Mrs. Kirsch from It. It. Yeah. So I guess he didn't like him. No, I think he did. <laughs> I think he did. But you notice that also Mrs. Kirsch is described as sounding like Yoda when she talks. It's just his reference to Empire Strikes Back, which he got to visit the oh. set of. He did a lot of that, my father. <laughs> is that your impression of Mrs. Kirsch? Yes. The whole hell of a lot fucking better than the fucking version we're getting in the new goddamn movie. You don't know. Calm down. Kelsey's not allowed to watch adaptations of King books anymore. (laughs) Uh, Lightning round stuff, Kelsey? It would take way too long. We've been going on for quite a bit. You're right. We absolutely have. I'm going to let it go. (laughs) Oh, there's an interesting story that Stephen King tells about how Kubrick told him he wanted to make The Shining. And I was up one morning about 7 o'clock, and I was shaving my face. And I had one eye open, and my wife comes in and says, Stanley Kubrick is on the telephone for you. And the first thing he asked him was, Do you believe there's an afterlife? Well, what do you think, Stan? And he goes... No, he says, I think when you're dead, you're dead. I just think that that's really interesting, that they they have these kind of conflicting feelings. When we talk about the miniseries version, I'll talk about what King feels about the same sort of thing. So, Kelsey, what do you think The Shining has on Rotten Tomatoes? 89. 85. Though it deviates from Stephen King's novel, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a chilling, often baroque journey into madness, exemplified by an unforgettable turn from Jack Nicholson, Metacritic of 66. Cinema score not applicable. Do you think it's overrated or underrated? Maybe just slightly underrated. What would you give it? I will give it a 90. I will make the jump to 95. I think it is an excellently made film. Yeah. I think it it has lasting power. This movie has had a big impact on film. Yeah, this might be the longest we've talked about any movie, any single movie we've had, even movies that we love more than this. We've seen this movie a billion times. I could watch it again right now. I mean, I, I'm so used to it. Like, I could have it on all the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I just, it, you know, I have my scenes that I love, and then I have the scenes that I just kind of, eh, whatever. I think it's... It's two biggest detriments are the fact that it deviates so much. I think it wouldn't be as good if if it didn't, but go ahead. And all the unwarranted praise this movie gets. I can see what you're saying in general. I'm surprised it had such a low score. I'm surprised it had an 86. Well, there's more things that, that we can talk about when it comes to praise. When it first came out, people didn't really like it that much. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it didn't adapt the book like people were expecting it to. Over time, it got more praise. People started to kind of separate it mentally from the book, which I think you should be able to do from fucking word one. AFI, I mentioned the list that that Here's Johnny uh, puts that phrase on. 
it did the hundred years lists, hundred years of cinema, and it separated them into categories. Uh, this is ranked 29th on their thrills list, which is like horror movies and thrillers and stuff like that. Their heroes and villains list, Jack Torrance was 25 out of 100. Channel 4 in England, back in the early 2000s, gave this the scariest film of all time. Total oh, that's, film, that's wrong. Total film gave it the fifth greatest horror movie of all time, a little bit later than that. Greatest is different than scariest. It's, I, I agree, I agree. Bravo gave it sixth place on their list of scary movie moments. Ninth scariest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. Roger Ebert put this on his greatest movies list. And just last year, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress uh, for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So obviously now people respect it a lot more than they did back then. And do not get me wrong. I totally understand where you're coming from with the unearned praise. People go above and beyond a lot of time for a lot of things. I don't disagree with you, and I don't think this movie is perfect. The hedge maze thing, I think, was a fuck-up, where you can't see it in the aerial shots of the Overlook. <laughs> I think that's just a fuck-up, because somebody else filmed those. Mm-hmm. The the I mean, same thing with the helicopter shadows. Somebody else filmed those. All helicopter-related. But I don't think that you can have a rubber band effect and say that everything is an accident and nothing is intentional just because some things are accidental. I do think that this is Kubrick's best movie. And I think there are a lot of movies by him that I don't particularly care for. So it's not that I'm obsessed with Kubrick and I think he's some auteur God. I just think that this one in particular is really good, but I do see where you're coming from. And I do know where that instinct is and it's not invalid. Totally get it. Do you see where I'm coming from? I do. I think it's interesting that you think this is his best movie. It'd be really hard for me to choose between this, Lolita. 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate Lolita. <laughs> and I fucking hate Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of Eyes Wide Shut. I see what he was trying to do. And... I think... I've never seen Barry Lyndon. I've never seen that. And I think that Clockwork Orange is interesting. And I think it's well shot. I, I do... I love his eye. Yeah. I will give him that. He has an amazing eye for things that I would never think to do. Yeah. And I think he, he's interesting as a filmmaker. But I do not think he's all that. I, I, I don't think he's this incredible thing that everyone thinks he the is. The one movie that he wanted to make that he never got to was the story of Napoleon. And he knew that people weren't going to be totally into it, and he knew it was going to be expensive. So he felt he had to do a lot more popular fare first before he could make something like that. Because Barry Lyndon was expensive and elaborate and beautiful by all accounts, but not very popular. It didn't make a lot of money. uh, Because it's a period piece, you know? And when I say 2001 A Space Odyssey... I don't actually really like no. that movie. I saw it the first time and I kind of hated it. Oh, I don't hate it. I think it takes rewatches to see where the value is in that movie. The reason I want to qualify the fact that 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of his best movies is not because I think it's the most it's the most entertaining. If I were to pick the most entertaining, 
it would be really hard between The Shining and Doctor Strangelove. And even in that, I think Doctor Strangelove would win. But 2001 A Space Odyssey is just an extremely impressive film to watch. It's so well made. It's so different from so many other things. It it did it did things that like I haven't seen many other films do. And so that's why it's so impressive to me. Not because I have fun watching it. It's yeah. way too long. And like I said, once you understand what it's saying, it's just like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got it a while ago. Thank yeah, you, totally. Mr. Kubrick. I don't need to watch Colors for 10 whole minutes. But anyway. We could talk about so much more stuff about this movie. We could. Forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. And I did tons of research and stuff. Oh, baby. And it's not all getting in here like, did you know Roadrunner had his own theme song? Because I didn't. Like, shit like nope. that we didn't talk about, right? There's tons, tons and tons and tons of stuff. But since we ha- the format of the show is we try to have as natural a conversation as we can while just talking through the plot of the movie some things just get left to the wayside so i guess my goal here with saying that is don't think you know we missed something just because we didn't talk about it Uh, but if you think we did miss something please send us something on twitter and i'd love to share your opinion and your thoughts and uh, maybe discuss it a little bit so please do i would really look forward to that Oh, God. So, so what, four hours? Our raw recording. Oh, God. Our raw recording, including just our chat in the beginning and a bunch of times where we stopped, is three hours and 24 minutes at this point. That's longer than most entire episodes that we do, let alone one movie. So, when we talk about the Shining miniseries, we're not going to go step by step through the entire plot. We're going to try to focus gonna on the differences. just going to talk about the differences. Yes. Although there are there are a lot of things to talk about when it comes to this. We'll yes. try to keep it really short. There are a lot of differences. Yes. <laughs> but we'll keep to the important parts. The parts that we find interesting. Yes. Like, I'm going to talk a lot about that fucking hose. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that. I'm mad about it. <laughs> but before we get to the miniseries, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. What 1995's Get Shorty and 1997's Men in Black director served as the cinematographer for 1990's Misery? Yeah. We'll have to do Misery eventually. Even though I can't watch that scene. Can anyone? God, is it's something with an, with an S. Sondheim, Sontag. Uh, I can't think of his name. What is it? Barry Sonnenfeld. There it is. There, and I was even like Barry Sontag. Like, no, I, yeah, damn it. You know, I think I did pretty good on that one, though. <laughs> you did. All right, Kelsey. Might have already asked you this, but I don't care. In Carrie, 1976, the blood of what animal is poured on the titular character on prom night? Pigs. Yep. <laughs> It's funny, we talked about pouring blood on Carrie in this episode, and we didn't mention that it was pig's blood. Anyway, moving on to our next movie in this double feature. feature This obviously extra long double feature for our 100th episode, folks, is 1997's Stephen King's The Shining, originally a miniseries for ABC that played over the course of three different nights, two-hour episodes, about an hour and a half of content each, 
Written for the screen by Stephen King. Directed by Mick Garris, who also directed The Stand. By the way, when we talk about The Stand, same director. Yes. There's also a story about... same director? Yes. There's also a story about why specifically King (laughs) likes Garris so much. Oh! It's because he clearly... He... He clearly really respects King's work. That I will give him. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this story. It was for another movie. It was for Sleepwalkers. Mick Garris directed that too. Is that a King? Yes. Is that a, is that a short story? I think so. Okay, because I've never heard of that one before. Mick Garris was, was one of two people that were going to direct it. And they went another way. They went with somebody else, a younger, more hotshot director. And Mick Garris called him up and just like... Stephen King got a call from Stanley Kubrick. He got a call from Garris and his wife was like, Mick Garris is on the phone. And Stephen King was like, oh shit, this is going to suck. We just had to reject this guy. And now he's come to call me a bastard, a son of a bitch. And so he picks up the phone and he talks to Garris and Garris is like, hey, I think you made the wrong decision, but I wanted to say good luck. And the next time you make something, please consider me. Aww. And King was like, wow, that's really awesome of him. That was a fantastic call, really honorable thing for him to do. And then the next thing that happened is this fucking punk young upstart director was starting to send like concepts for the movie. And King was like, what the fuck is this shit? Including like an explanation of where these creatures in the, in the story came from. And he's like, oh, there's going to be a planet of these things and they all have these powers And Stephen King called up his agent and was like, please get me Garrus. And that's how Garrus got Sleepwalkers. And then he did The Stand. And then he did this. I mean, if you've read the books, this guy really does. It's important to him to make it as close to the novel as he can. Yeah. Unfortunately. For good or ill. (laughs) Unfortunately, that means that he does. He's not looking at it from. I'm making a movie perspective. Right. And where you might say that Kubrick did that, but went too far. Went way too far. Garris didn't do that enough, maybe. Mm-hmm. But in any case, King talks about how he 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 feels like he can judge somebody and how they deal with, like, the fantastical and the supernatural with how willing they are to accept the fact that sometimes you just don't know where this stuff comes from. Uh-uh, Mr. King. No, no, no. It's, see, I knew you. Would, this would bother you. No, no, no. It bothers me because King gives a backstory to all of his ghosts, good or bad. <laughs> right. But it's not like... Like the shit monster from the Dreamcatcher. Right, yes. He explains where they all come from. So don't you dare, Mr. King, try to say that. Well, he's talking about how in Sleepwalkers you don't really know. You know that they exist. I haven't seen... I haven't read that, so I don't know. Right. But I mean, the point is that just because they have a backstory doesn't mean you know where they came from like there's a planet of them like how did they get created in the first place how did the great turtle and how did it get created in the first place right we don't really know we know that they exist and we know that they've been here as long as time but we don't know what what came of them and it's your ability to accept that that king values and he judges you on your like can you accept that then you can deal with the supernatural stuff well, yeah, I mean, if you if you want to believe in Supernatural, you have to accept that you don't know where it comes from. Right, but you don't need an explanation for everything, and I think that's really important, and you and I get into fights sometimes about that. But in any case, we haven't even talked about the cast. We're really falling back on our promise to keep this short. 
Uh, it stars Stephen Weber, Rebecca DeMornay, Cortland Mead, Elliot Gould in a brief appearance, and Melvin Van Peebles. And the kid. Was that's he? that's Cortland Mead. Oh. <laughs> so, a couple things about the stars in here. Stephen King makes a guest appearance as the conductor of the band. Of course he at does. At the party. Which says does. GC on their setup. A GC stands for Gage Creed, which is the name of Stephen King's character in this, which as we know is the name of the little boy in Pet Cemetery. Just what? Why? Uh, you do get a great scene in the deleted scenes where he's screaming and his face melts. And it's totally awesome, but it ended up being deleted. I might have to share that on Twitter. Melvin Van Peebles, who plays Dick Halloran. He wrote, directed, and starred in Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which I'm sure you've heard of at least uh, the point the the plot of sweet sweetback's badass song which is a famous black exploitation movie uh, is after saving a black panther from some racist cops a black male prostitute goes on the run from the man with the help of the ghetto community and some disillusioned hell's angels never heard of it but he's really famous for doing that uh rebecca de mornay or as garth would say de hornay best babe at the oscars <clears throat> Rebecca de Mornay. Yeah. Rebecca de Horney, more like. <laughs> Sweet! Hello. She is quite the woman. <laughs> She's probably most originally famous for being in Risky Business. She was also mm -hmm. in Backdraft and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. But most recently, she plays Trish Walker, or Patsy Walker's mom, in the Jessica Jones TV show. You know, the one that Jessica hates? Because she exploits she her. Like. Huh. Obviously, Stephen Weber comes from Wings. He's most famous for that. I can't believe when people don't know what Wings is. I watched that show so much growing up. My parents watched it. I know it was a show. I didn't. Isn't that where M-O-N? Wasn't he on that? No, that was no, Coach. No, no, no. He was on Coach. I know there was a show called Wings. Don't Dauber. Okay, he's from Coach. The guy who was in Wings is the guy from Sideways. And Sandman from Spider-Man 3. That's the guy from Wings. And By the way... And the dude who played Monk in the Monk TV series, he was in Wings as well. The voice of Superman in the cartoons of Superman, who was originally considered for this role, plays Stephen Weber's brother in Wings. There's tons of people in Wings. By the way, M-O-O-N, mm -hmm. we didn't mention that he's in Jennifer's Body for like two seconds. Yes, that's weird. We didn't mention that. Yes, mm -hmm. you're right. Well, because he was in one scene, said he was going to like chop your dick off or whatever, and then you just never see him again. You can find the original aired version from 1997 with commercials at archive.org. We should have watched that. I really want to see those commercials, but the quality is not great, so you can access it for free. Otherwise, it's not streaming anywhere. We own the DVD because Kelsey bought it when she went to the hotel, Yep. Uh, and that's what we ended up watching, and then I watched the, the commentary of all of them. Should people watch it? I think if you've read the book, you should see this. But I think if you've already seen Kubrick's The Shining and you haven't read the book, you don't really need to. No. But if you've read the book, I really think it's important that you see this. Or, you know what, if you don't want to read the book and you want to see, like, what the differences are, you can read this. Or you can watch this. It's the same. It's basically the book. It's a lot of the book. So, yeah. If you don't I mean, want to bother reading. Yeah. If you were interested in reading the book, 
yes, I think this is a good stand-in for the novel. But if you've read the novel, I really think you should see this because I think it's... You'll get what um, you were looking for. Unless you don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, if it didn't matter to you at all that the movie was nothing like the book, then, you know, whatever. But if right. it bothered you, then see this. It's 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 fun. The kid's annoying, but it's fun. I feel bad for saying the kid was annoying. Yeah. Cortland Mead. Because it's not that he was a bad actor. He has some lines where he has to say what he's thinking. What, again, Stephen King says is one of the hazards of writing for film. And it gets really annoying. He's unbelievable in certain parts. But but he's not a terrible actor. No, he's not. There's some parts where he's really good. And by all accounts, he was totally on board as an actor in this. He knew exactly what The Shining was. He knew they were going to do this horror movie stuff. And he was there for every single shot, for every single day. He was 100% gung-ho about doing this movie. And everyone really loved working with him. And fucking good for him. That's really awesome that a kid was that dedicated to this. So you can take our advice or leave it. But when we get back, uh, we will talk more about The Shining. This time, Stephen King's The Shining, the TV miniseries on ABC from 1997. Our greatest fears are all around us. Hiding in nightmares, shrouded in evil, waiting to be unleashed. You shine on, boy. Shine on? The Bible calls it having vision. I can feel it coming off you like heat. From Stephen King, the creator of It, The Tommyknockers, and The Stand, comes a completely new vision of terror. Seize your destiny, Mr. Torrance. Yeah. Coming, sweetheart. Are you gonna hurt me, Daddy? Come down here and take your medicine! Oh my god. You're never taking my son! This spring. Go to hell. And pray you get out alive. Rebecca de Mornay, Stephen Weber. Daddy's mad at mommy! Stephen King's The Shining. Okay, Kelsey, now we've already pretty much gone through the general plot of The Shining story with the 1980 Kubrick version, so we're not going to go through beat by beat the story elements that happen in this version, which is more faithful to the book. We're going to just tackle the, the major differences and not every little tiny difference. There are a few things I want to talk about, though, the fact that this is a television miniseries that played over three nights. I think it was even four days. I think it was like Sunday, Monday, Wednesday. Uh, so the gap between episode two and three, they had to wait an extra day to get the rest of it. But they talk about how it would normally be difficult to direct something for a miniseries because you have to worry about the flow of commercials and episode breaks that interrupts whatever tension that you're trying to build. McGarris said, though, specifically that he didn't have to worry at all about this because Stephen King wrote the script and he wrote it with this stuff in mind. Garris says that it's the best script that he's ever had the pleasure of directing. Uh, of course, he is a huge Stephen King fan, so take of that what you will. Uh, he does also talk about how every single episode was over time the first episode was three minutes over the second episode was 21 minutes over and the third episode was 13 minutes over he says if there was a director's cut the first 
episode would probably end up being like five minutes shorter than it ended up being. He'd take five minutes out. Cutting the 21 minutes in part two wasn't that hard, but the 13 minutes in episode three, which is all pretty much climax, was very difficult for them to actually find those 13 minutes to cut out. So I figured it was worth sharing what it was like trying to turn this into a miniseries specifically. So they needed to make this with the understanding that, yes, a Kubrick version did exist, that no, this is not a remake of that Kubrick version. To Garris, he says that the book is about parental responsibility. We talked in the last one about the responsibilities of the man of the house, quote unquote, but that Garris feels that this is parental responsibility and the guilt of having violent feelings towards your family. King specifically said that when he had his first kid, he was surprised at just how angry he could be at his own child, at those feelings that he could have. And part of that kind of was built into the story of The Shining. The other thing that you have to remember about The Shining is that it was written by a man who was 27, 28 years old at that time. I was very young in marriage. I was very young in the problems of marriage and fathering and parenting. I was completely new to the idea of fathering because I never had one. Uh, my own ran out when I was two years old. I don't have any memory of him at all. And I was shocked by the amount of rage I could feel toward my children. Nobody had ever told me. TV didn't tell me. TV told me that every, every father was Robert Young. Father knows best. Father has all the answers. Certainly, father doesn't have a drinking problem, you know. Uh, father doesn't come home every night and get blasted. But that's basically what I was doing. And I needed to write about it because I didn't understand it and because I was struggling to be better than I was. And so this one's more about being a parent and less about just one man dealing with his own inner demons. It's a good synopsis. It's a good I Yeah, definitely. They were disappointed, of course, that the film didn't address those elements, which I totally get. Address, oh, oh, the original, yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It did not do enough in the way of dealing with their relationships. Right, yeah. Uh, of course, this one, probably the biggest difference is the ending. We get much more direct contact with... The boiler. The boiler, yeah. So much so that in the very first episode... In the very first five minutes, they discuss the boiler and how it's got so many problems. It's One day, it's just going to explode. Yeah, I wouldn't want to even be down here if it passed 160 in pressure or whatever. But ultimately, what this means is, is that Jack gets a redemption arc that he doesn't get in the Kubrick version. Which I think is a, is a really sad thing that he doesn't get that redemption. Right. Well, King's version. King described Kubrick's version as it seemed like it was made to hurt people. I think we might have mentioned that in the last segment, but he also said that it was like a beautiful car without an engine. Uh how It is a beautiful movie. Yeah, it is it, he recognized that it was a fantastic movie, but it didn't have the heart that he intended the the source material to actually have. And so in this one Jack, after he hits Halloran over the head with the croquet mallet several times, and Halloran lives, <laughs> he goes down there to stop the boiler, to, to vent the boiler, to stop it from exploding. And he's so maddened that he burns his hands on the wheel 
and the owner the uh the owner from the 20s of the hotel his ghost is there grady's ghost yeah derwent is there grady's ghost is there and they're and they can't they're not strong enough to do anything about it yet but they're like egging him on yes do it vent the system but he's also talking to his son using the shining and this is when all this guilt wells up and he realizes no my job as his father is to sacrifice myself for my family's well-being when he refuses to vent it i think it's derwent who gets up the ghostly power to be able to actually interact with something and starts to vent it jack forces himself in place and tightens it back up again again burning his hands until ultimately the whole place just explodes and goes up which then leads into a scene that we don't get in kubrick's version where he's graduating from high school and we see both Halloran and Wendy there. And then he gets to see his dad, which is a really sweet moment. Oh, but it's so cheesy. It's so cheesy. Kissing, kissing. That's what I've been missing. <laughs> and he does this, like, he stops after he gets his diploma and everyone's just watching him talk to himself for a couple minutes yeah before he sits down and no one is like what the fuck just happened but ultimately both stories while they do have different outcomes they treat jack completely differently the way king describes it kubrick saw the hotel as a singular place where one man went in his term section eight which is a military term when somebody's lost it and blamed it on ghosts that weren't really there. Uh, that the ghosts, whether they are there or not, kind of isn't important because it's a story of Jack going crazy and nuts. I disagree with that assessment. Well, that's what King says. He says his version, he always saw Jack Torrance as a piece of, as he puts it, flawed steel that's bent back and forth and back and forth and back and forth by the hotel until he finally snaps. And the ending is about him trying to fix himself and redeem himself. This version does a much better job of showing how much the ghosts are affecting him. But I I think it's silly to say that they aren't having an effect on him in Kubrick's version. Yeah. It's, I I think the point is, King's point is that if, if you don't believe the ghosts are really there, the story still works. This story, King's story the ghosts have to be there they have to be having an influence on somebody who is troubled and they push him over the edge so what other differences do you want to talk about well let's talk about the hose okay yeah let's talk about the hose i think i've said this before that it's pretty rare for me to actually be afraid of a book yeah it's pretty difficult to do which is why it had such an impression on me because it literally scared me. I, f- I feel like you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you started it several times and didn't finish it until like your second or third time. I didn't finish it until, yeah, my second time. The first time I tried to read through it, I couldn't get past uh, the part where the kids are lost and the adults are remembering it. Uh-huh. Uh, that's when a lot of it, the story kind of slows down a lot. Okay. And so that's why it was so difficult for me. So to it wasn't like it. the scariness that you had to, no, okay. no, it was just that I love King's writing. I don't mind that he goes back and forth with time, but there is this short part in it where it's like, it feels like 
you can never get super into it yeah. because he's constantly taking you back to another time. Well, we talked about trimming the fat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but then after that, I, I read it. And the first time I tried to read it, there were some scary moments where I was at home alone and it really scared me. Now, The Shining really did not scare me, which I was expecting it to because my parents have told me my entire life how scary they thought The Shining was. Uh-huh. And it really didn't do much to me while I was reading it. It wasn't until the next time I was in a hotel and I walked by a fire hose that I was like, oh, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> now the fire hose in this. <laughs> oh, boy. It's, what is it, 98? 97. 97 technology trying to make a hose come to life. Well, yeah. they thought the only way to do that was by literally making the hose nozzle have teeth. Uh-huh. And it looks really, really bad. If you've ever seen... You've ever seen the Langoliers? Oh, no. I would it's put, not as bad I'd as the I'd put it on par with the Langoliers. I'd say... It, at its worst, The Shining is the Langoliers at its best. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that part really pisses me off because King did such a good job with describing it and describing how you walk by it. And then there's that feeling of, did it move? Mm -hmm. And you turn around and it hasn't. And you keep walking and you're like, hey... I feel like it moved again and you look back and it still hasn't moved and it's it's that feeling i get now uh -huh. when i walk past a, like when i'm by myself and i'm walking down a hotel hallway and i walk past a fucking hose so like older hotel i then, will yeah. look back every once in a while just because it's so scary to me uh -huh. it's that feeling of I'm not looking at it. It could be doing anything at once. Like a boo in Super Mario. Whenever you're not looking at it, it moves towards you. <laughs> exactly. And that's what's going on with that and the topiaries. And I feel like this movie actually did an okay job with the topiaries. Okay, so the first time the topiaries come into play, Jack's outside and he's looking at a scale model of the hotel. And he's like... You know, fee fi fo fum like he's a giant and he's having fun around it. Uh, but he's he's kind of starting to just lose his marbles a little bit. And that giant house, the the model of it is mm -hmm. in the book. And if I'm not remembering wrong, uh, it does come to life a couple times when mm. Danny is down there playing. So while he's down there, and then he starts to like swing on the swing with the snowshoes which would and, be impossible well it wouldn't be impossible it'd just be very uncomfortable but he manages <laughs> to do it and he's like singing some random song the topiaries start to move when he's not looking and they start to the snow kind of shuffles off of them i love that effect and this scene where he's freaked out and he it's just him being paranoid and he thinks they're moving i think that garrison team did a very good job like i remember when that scene ended i was like you know, I didn't actually hate that scene. Mm -hmm. And you said you really liked it. Like, yeah, it's it's not bad. It's when they come back later <laughs> at the end of episode two, going into episode three, when... We actually watch them move. It's and not that bad. And they're headed Danny. It's 97 CG. It is. And T-1000, it ain't. <laughs> 
and we have Wendy upstairs watching this from above as these lions approach him. That's the end, I think, of, of episode two. Yeah. And then episode three starts. And, and it just is like, moving. oh, they're gone. Is it? I thought they were they were still moving. They move more. in and you're oh. like, oh, oh, and then somebody calls Danny's name. And when he turns, they're not there. Yeah. But I did really like it when they were scaring Jack because, yeah, I like hearing the snowfall and him looking and him being like, I'm not seeing this. Right. And I do enjoy his talking to himself yeah. like, nope, that's not happening. <laughs> because that's what you have to do when something is scary and you're just like, I know nothing weird is happening. Yep. You have to convince yourself of it. Just like, nope. That's not, that's not what I'm, ha that's not what I'm seeing. Yeah. All right, what else do you want to talk about that's different? They get a lot more into his alcoholism. Yeah. We actually see him attend AA meetings. Yes, and King says that this, this is one thing that's in the miniseries that's not in the book, because when the, when he wrote the book, he had no idea what AA even was. He talks about how he was in the depth of his alcoholism at this point, but he had not yet discovered the wonders of drugs, but that would come in time, he puts it. But yeah, he he didn't even know what AA was when he wrote this book. I could have sworn it was in the book. Or maybe he added it in later editions, but he himself says that it wasn't in the book. Oh. Yeah. We're talking about Jack is alcoholic and Steve King is alcoholic, which I am, I guess. They say that you never get better than that. I haven't had a drink probably in 15 years, I'm going to say. But you have to realize that when I wrote The Shining, the novel, one of the few things that's in this miniseries that isn't in the novel is uh, I uh, didn't know about AA then. But because this happened in 97 and everyone knows what AA is by this point, it wouldn't have been believable for an alcoholic who's trying to prove to people that he's recovering to not go to some kind of therapy about it. And because he's going up there, he's he's attending AA meetings in Sidewinder. And I think it's the very beginning of the second episode where we see him in meetings as long as as long as the snow hasn't started falling falling yet. He can go to these AA meetings. Mick Garris is in, he has a cameo in the AA meeting. He's one of the people that stands up. It's right when directed by Mick Garris shows up. <laughs> he says he did not plan for that. And <laughs> he says the editor tells him it was an accident. But he doesn't know. And then after that, his plan is to attend via phone. So attend it remotely. And we also get to see that he did beat up one of his students for slashing his tires. Yeah, because he had to give him a bad grade. No, he cut him, him from the debate team. From the debate team. That's what it is. Yeah. And it's so weird that you're he saying like that he didn't go to. Him. It's so weird that you're saying that he didn't go to AA meetings in the book because I could swear that he did. I know for a fact there's the scene where he t calls his sponsor. Yeah. And I remember that very distinctly because he is talking to him right in front of a bar. Right. And we get most of the sponsor stuff uh, in in the miniseries, which we don't get in the original, because as you said, I think in our last segment, he doesn't just show up and Ullman gives him the job. Ullman does not want to hire him because he knows about his past. Mm -hmm. But Jack's sponsor specifically is on the board of directors of the hotel. Mm -hmm. And so he's the one who gives him the job. He just needs to talk to Ullman about the position because Ullman wants to have a conversation with him. Not because Ullman has any say into whether or not he gets this job. Right. I also think it's super interesting 
that they make it seem like he doesn't like his sponsor. Like, they, they make it seem like he's resisting this whole situation. Like, when he gets off the phone, he's like, must be nice to be so rich. Yeah. Because... Well, he resents him a little bit for all the resources that he has when he's a guy who doesn't even have a job and he has to deal with the fact that he can't cope by drinking alcohol. It's just interesting to me that they would show that much resistance in this character Uh because it makes it seem like it would be easier for him to fall under the spell of the hotel ghosts. What do you think of the relationship in the miniseries between Jack and Danny? I think it's much better. Yeah. You get to actually see a bond between them. Yeah. That you do not get at all. None. The bond really in the in the Kubrick version is between Wendy and Danny. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, you get it much more in the miniseries between Jack and Danny. And it it makes it so much better when he ends up sacrificing himself because you know that he truly loves his son whereas in kubrick's version i never got clarification that he did love his son yeah and then you took away his redemption arc well i mean to jack in the kubrick version his family is a burden yeah there are some things that again uh, king does where he has people have their little catchphrases where multiple times throughout Jack channels his father because his father was abusive, which we do not get in the Kubrick version. Uh, His father, we hear one time over the radio, which is the reason that Jack destroys the radio. And then he forgets that he does it. So (laughs) then he accuses Danny of doing it. Or supposedly he forgets. I think at this point he's only starting to turn. So it's hit. The aggression is part of the haunting, but I don't think he's accusing him when he knows he did it. I think he just doesn't believe that he could have done it. But anyway, he hears his father over the radio, who is uh, Miguel Ferrer, who was a key role in The Stand. He recently passed away. Which one was he? He was the right-hand man of the evil guy. He died? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, it's a bummer. I liked him. Yeah, totally. But anyway, he gets this one uncredited role over the radio, but he uses terms like, take your medicine and he calls his son a little pup he's a pup a trespassing little pup and steven Which weber was real hard for steven weber to he say sounds real unnatural when he's saying some of this stuff and i feel i feel like i think a, that's that's king's fault i think it's a director's job To hear the actor say the words, try and say it a couple times. If it doesn't come out naturally... Then change it. The director needs to have that wherewithal to say, let it go. Yeah. We're going to change this because it just sounds so stupid. So Weber Weber couldn't quite pull it off. Something that King wrote, which is probably a little heavy-handed, and that Mick Garris should have caught. Yes. And this combination of people who couldn't do this thing made it sound kind of awkward every time it came up it sounds ridiculous when he says it it didn't when his father said it yeah sounded way more natural when that actor said it yeah and if steven weber as an actor can't channel that kind of acting then you shouldn't do it steven weber i think for the most part did a pretty good job i didn't think he was the best part i didn't think he was great when he went crazy 
I think when he was kind of starting to go crazy is when he's at his best. Mm-hmm. When he's really crazy. When the hotel takes him over at the end, he looks silly. He says a couple of things. First and foremost, he says he didn't even think about the fact. Because when they were casting the role, a lot of people just outright refused. Because it was like Jack Nicholson's role. And they didn't want to go up against that and be compared to that. And Stephen Weber, who admits himself he's a big Jack Nicholson fan, he was a bigger Stephen King and horror fan. And so he was really excited about the chance to do this. He would ask his agent when he was up for consideration. He would call him all the time and be like, am I shining yet? (laughs) (laughs) And he says when he went to the, the first audition, he's like, I didn't even think about the fact that it was a Jack Nicholson role. And if I had... I probably wouldn't have gotten it because he would have been too in his head about that because mm-hmm. he loves Jack Nicholson. He looks up to him as an actor. He's like, I, yeah, that would have tanked me completely. It's just an interesting little thought about Stephen Weber. But also he says that he didn't have any kids when he made this and he's had kids since. And so he talks on the commentary. Occasionally there'll be moments where he's like, I wish this is one of those things I wish I could have done again. That, oh, you know what, now that I have kids, I have a new perspective (laughs) on what this relationship would be like and a perspective that I thought I could imitate before I had kids and there are changes that I would make if I had the opportunity again. Yeah, and as an actor, that is difficult. It's like if you are portraying things that you've never experienced yourself, it's much more difficult. Yeah. And so. there's there's these moments in this story that they can have because they have more time to work with them where Jack is being very threatening to Danny and Danny's really worried and then Jack's like, "Oh no. No, no, buddy. I I would I would never hurt you." Like he's trying to convince somebody what he really believes. That he would never hurt them, but that somebody doesn't believe him <laughs> and that desperation that he has. I think there are some pretty great moments there in this that you just don't get in the Kubrick version. Agreed. I also think we get a much better understanding of Jack and Wendy's relationship. Yeah, there's a lot of time. The longest scene is like nine minutes long between the two of them. And they're talking about, like, what to do with Danny and all of that and about their relationship and how she just wants to go upstairs and uh, get frisky. (laughs) And he's too focused on the history of the hotel. That's like a nine-minute scene. And Garris talks about how it was the last scene that they filmed in the hotel and they had one day to film it. And it was nine minutes long. And he says, on average, you're probably going to get like two to four minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was a, such a long scene that you have to work with the actors playing off themselves that you can't really block it effectively without restricting your actors and not getting the best performance out of them. So that made it really, really difficult for them to do. So like three hours into the day, they hadn't filmed a single shot because they were just working through the scene over and over and over again to try to get it where they wanted it to get. And they they finally got the whole scene in that one day. But it's a great scene between the two of them where they they seem like they're a married couple. Exactly. They seem like they have history together. They seem like they have love for one another. Mm-hmm. They share love for their child. They are dealing with this situation the best way that they can, which you don't get any of that from Kubrick's version. Right. 
one of the things that I do that I do like about this one is that Wendy thinks that Jack hurt Danny and she's really upset with him and he's trying to profess his innocence and he really is innocent because it was the woman in 217 in this version uh, who did it. And Danny's not saying anything and Jack's trying to defend himself and she's like, no, who else could it have been? And he's like, you know, it's really shitty that you're blaming me for this when I didn't do it. And then Danny finally, like, comes out of his trance and he's like, it was her, it was her. Because and he then, can see the woman right. in front of him. And then he runs to Jack and holds him and Jack's like, oh, isn't this interesting? And she's like, what? You don't think I did it? Uh, no, I didn't. And he's like, it doesn't feel good to be accused of something, does it? Yeah, and he like, says, yeah. of course I know you wouldn't do it. Right. Daddy, oh, daddy, oh, daddy, it was her! What, what do you mean? Wendy? Jack, you can't think that I... Wendy? Jack, I was in here sketching. I fell asleep. I woke up from your shouting. I would never... I know you would never. <gasps> it's not nice to be accused, is it? I am counting on the fact that I know you would not hurt your son. You didn't give me the same benefit of the doubt. How not, can she? Not that he deserves it. Exactly. But, but there is that moment where that you don't get in The Shining where she accuses him. And then Danny says it was this lady in the hotel. And she's never like, I'm sorry, Jack, for accusing you. You know? And he's never like, hey, are you going to apologize? So my response would be, you're going to apologize for breaking our kid's arm? Right. Well, I'm sure he <laughs> did. I'm sure he did. It's one of those things where I think as somebody who's done something like that, you feel like you can never apologize enough. And the tragedy is that it's kind of true. You can't apologize enough. And it may suck to be you, but that's the consequence of what you did. There's also a lot more strength on Rebecca De Mornay's character this time. Yes. She full-on says to him, you ever touch her son again, and I will leave you. I will never lie for you again. And he even says, you won't have to. If I ever touch him, I would leave you uh, because I wouldn't be able to live with myself. And there's just so much more heart, as Stephen King put it. Yeah. Here. There's also the history of the hotel. I don't think we need to talk about all of it, but what I do want to say is that giving the ghosts a story makes them more believable. Yeah. I feel. I mean, I believed the ghosts in Kubrick's version. It's just that without that history there and without understanding why these people are here. Although I feel like King's version doesn't fully explain it either. Yeah. But it gives it more history and you find out there were mass murders. Uh, there was a lot of gangster stuff happening in this hotel. The woman uh, that in the hotel in the in two one seven killed herself because she was getting old. Yeah, there's just so much more there to understand what's happening. Right, why there are all these bad vibes here in this place. Yeah, we also get this whole thing with the wasps. We also find out that he's not writing a book; he's writing a play. Well, these are all very little uh, minor differences. The reason he stops writing. So in, in the Kubrick version, he doesn't really stop writing per se. Like it's not a it's not a plot element that he stops writing. It's that he's never been writing is the problem in this version. It's that he stops writing the play to write this book about the history because he finds all these like scrapbooks and stuff in the basement. 
and he he's so fascinated by it and this is his connection to the hotel growing stronger and stronger that he wants to write a book about the history of the hotel and Danny says he knows that Uncle Al won't like it but he doesn't care Uncle Al being uh Jack's sponsor who got him the job he won't like the fact that he's going to be releasing a book about <laughs> all the tragedy that has happened in this hotel but it's a good way to make money yep but yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much, and, and we just don't have time because we spent so much time on the first one. I think I'm good. There are a few things that I did want to talk about. Wendy Torrance is actually, I mean, we mentioned before, his idea was that she was a beautiful blonde ex-cheerleader, uh, but that she needed to be strong and the equal of her husband and the spirits that he's channeling. And that's why he was so disappointed in the Wendy in the original version. But the additional thing I want to mention is that specifically she's based off of King's wife. Which makes sense. But just enough of a difference to, as he puts it, create a division between his own life and the story. He does put elements of himself into almost everything he writes. Yes. But it needs to be different enough to where it's not just him. It's not just an autobiographical story. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he liked Rebecca De Mornay so much that he uses a line in Dr. Sleep, which is a movie that's going to be coming out, which I think we mentioned in the last segment is going to be based off of both the book and the Kubrick version, which I'm really interested to see how they pull that off. I think that is the best way to go, and I'm really curious to see how they do it. But he puts a line in that book that is, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Rebecca De Mornay having been in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Awesome. I mentioned before, I think I had somewhere how much the movie cost to make. The stand cost $28 million. And it was eight hours long with commercials. This one was $21 million with six hours of content with commercials. Uh, and he does say he's much happier with the CG in this than in the stand, which he considered to be unsatisfying. <laughs> it's unsatisfying in both, Mick. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also talked about Melvin Van Peebles. Oh. And his okay. look. Okay. He looks more like the character looks in the book. How you imagine he looks? Yes. Yeah. He has more of that jazzy feel that king thinks is necessary for these characters uh -huh. but he way overacts yeah you mentioned the scene in kubrick's version where he's on the bed and he's he's getting this call from all the way across the country from danny and it's so overwhelming that he's just standing there his eyes are wide he doesn't blink his mouth is open and you could see like his the fact that he has cataracts like the fogginess in his eyes, like it's all really very effective. Very. At communicating that. Meanwhile, Melvin Van Peebles' direction he received was basically to act like you're having a heart attack, which is which is way different. But everyone, in, in this one, it's, he's around people more and everyone like needs to worry about him as an elderly man. Is everything wrong? Is it, Are you okay? I just think it's interesting that King described his costume in the first scene he appears in as quote early american pimp and he didn't like the way that he was dressed <laughs> that's hilarious because i just said that he looked uh -huh. more like he did in the book that's so fucking funny garris calls his outfit melvin van peebles disco finery ah! because he picked out that outfit himself 
which I think is is pretty great. It's fucking awesome. I love it. Let's talk about the inspiration for the book. I mentioned about how he went to the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, and that's the hotel where he got the idea. Right before they were closing, so it was totally empty. So here's the story as he tells it on the commentary really early on. He had done Carrie. He had done Salem's Lot. He was trying to write something else, and the inspiration just wasn't coming to him. His sister-in-law, I think, said, well, why don't you just take the weekend off? You don't have any ideas where to go. Just drive someplace. That's what his wife suggested. We'll just get in the car and we'll go west, right? And so if it wasn't for his wife and his sister-in-law, this never would have happened. And then, so they get in their car and they drive out into the mountains just to see what was up there. They start at Boulder, which is where they were staying at the time, and they reach the Rocky Mountain National Park, and there King saw a sign that read, the road is not plowed after the first snowstorm. And that got him thinking about the Donner Party, which is mentioned in both versions. Eventually, they came across the Stanley Hotel, and they had no idea if they could stay there. The first thing that he saw was three nuns who apparently appear in the exterior shots in the miniseries version. I was looking for them in the first exterior shots, and then I forgot to look later. So that's kind of a bummer. Uh, But it was October, and very obviously everyone was checking out. So he goes up to the front desk and talks to the lady there, and he asks if he could stay the night. And she said, if you can pay cash, then yes. Because we already sent our credit card slips down to Denver. If she didn't say that, The Shining never would have happened. So he looks in his wallet, and he has the cash. If he didn't have the cash, The Shining never would have happened. So they stay the night, and they are literally the only ones staying there. They had dinner in the dining hall, and there's an orchestra that's playing just for them. Because the orchestra has a contract with the hotel, and they... Are the requirement is that they play if there are guests. And so since there are guests, the orchestra's there for an extra day and they're playing just for them. His wife and him have a beer because he's still drinking at this point. Uh, and then she goes up to bed and then he stays down there and has a couple of beers on his own. And eventually he goes back to the room and on his way, he gets lost in the corridors of the hotel. And he says that that is the moment where he got the idea for the novel. I just thought that that's really interesting i can't remember exactly but i think on the tour of the stanley they mention something about him being in the bar by himself and not realizing that there was a bartender in there yeah and supposedly that also had a big effect on it as well king says if he's known for anything other than the pig's blood and carry or the dog and cujo (laughs) it's red rum I just thought that's something I forgot to mention when we talked about where Red Rum came from. Let's talk about Tony. Tony. So Tony (laughs) is a stuffed animal, and he is an older version of Danny. Yes. He is the version that we will see at the end. Yeah. Getting his diploma. Uh Uh-huh. In the book. Okay. Tony is supposed to be him as a teenager. I think I talked about this. And that's fine. I prefer that to... Just the Danny man that lives isn't in his mouth. here, Mrs. Torrens. <laughs> I'm down for an actual person playing it. That's fine. Uh-huh. Not down with you for some reason. Making hovering, them hover. Hovering in the air and not just hovering, 
but circling yeah. in the air. It looks so fucking it's dumb. It's early low budget <laughs> CG that they just oh god no it's it's really bad and then he like waves his hand over a road <laughs> sign and it turns into a skull and crossbones. In case you didn't get the hint, danger is in your future, Danny. <laughs> I mentioned before the story about how Kubrick called Stephen King and asked him about hell and the afterlife. When addressing this in the commentary, King says he most closely relates, because he gets asked all the time if he believes in the stuff that he writes. He says he most closely relates to the poster in Fox Mulder's office in the X-Files. I want to believe. We're he the says, same. Huh? Stephen and I are the same. Yeah. He says, do I believe? Mm, not necessarily. Have I ever seen a ghost? I saw something once that I can't explain. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> it seems to me that there's no better way to discuss our feelings about fear and the unknown than to do so with the supernatural format. So I do. It's not very satisfying, but it's the best I can do, is the way he puts it. Speaking of seeing things, this movie, this miniseries, was actually filmed in the Stanley. The The crew and cast stayed in the hotel during filming. And let me tell you guys, it was real cool to say, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> I've been down. They do show where he goes down to the boiler. Now, it's not the same in the real Stanley. It's not yeah. that big and all that. I don't even know if you actually see the boiler on the um tour. But it was pretty neat that I, I've been down, like, and it is. It's all stone walls and stuff, just like they show in the in the movie. Uh -huh. So that was really, really cool. It was super cool to see them in the lounge area because that's exactly what it looks like. Mm -hmm. It was so cool watching them go up the stairs because I've been on those stairs. Yeah. I've been in front of the room 217. It's just a bummer that they, as it's soon the as they room. showed it, uh -huh. as soon as they showed it, I said, nah. <laughs> I remember I have a picture of me so everything that they didn't film in the hotel was filmed in Denver so it was all done relatively locally uh, all in Colorado they went over budget on just the snow by about a hundred thousand dollars just the fake snow they used ski resort snow machines they used snow cone machines they used everything they could get their hands on shaved soap other solutions like that Here's the thing about Colorado, guys. Colorado is the weirdest state because you can expect it to be freezing. You can expect it to snow, and it won't. <laughs> yes. Like, uh, you can't trust the weather people there. And like I said, it is it does take place in what they call a snow shadow, where it snows above it <laughs> and below it. But because this is right below where snow falls, none hits it. You know, so most of the time it was not snowing and you can see off in the edge that the trees don't have snow on them on the edge of the frame. <laughs> they can only go back so far. They had already gone over budget by $100,000, but that's why I told the story earlier. They came back and refilmed some shots like Danny playing in the snow after they got like their one real snowfall. And it was, they say, they, when snow did fall, it did white out like it was, you couldn't see anything. Once it, the snow stopped, there was plenty of stuff they could work with. And they're like, oh, those other shots that look so cheesy. Let's refilm those shots. I also absolutely love that so many people flock to the Stanley. I mean, like I said, they've got a tour. They do it every day, multiple times a day because it's so famous for this. Uh -huh. And so many people show up and are disappointed. Yeah. 
because it's just like you can see it in the aerial shots that they show that it's it's a pretty sunny place. But I think they're disappointed because they didn't do their research. Right. And didn't realize that there's a huge difference between the book and the film. Yeah, because, I mean, they need to go to the Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood if they want the one that they've seen. Mm-hmm. And then you don't get anything on the inside. Uh-huh. And that's why the Timberline does sell some stuff. I think I've posted a picture of the awesome snow globe that I have. Uh-huh. Have but, you? Let's the, oh, we'll post it again. But it doesn't look anything like it on the inside. So no one goes there for it to be like the Overlook. Yeah. And yet the Stanley that no one knows visually is the one that everyone goes to and everyone's disappointed when they get there. (laughs) Garrus talks about how there is ghostly stuff that goes on in the hotel that he's heard. There are records in the hotel of guest sightings. Yes. The cast and crew would report weird things happening, but he never saw anything uh, because, of course, movies where ghostly stuff is supposed to happen, people are going to report that ghostly stuff happens. Oh, yeah. And the Stanley, oh, they love it. They, they will tell up. you. Yeah. They will tell uh-huh. you all about the different ghosts that live there. That, and they admit, they're like, this isn't, this isn't in the book. This is just our own personal ghosts. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. And Stephen <laughs> Weber on the commentary tells a story about how he didn't personally see anything, but he was so paranoid about it. <laughs> That he insisted on moving to a different room where he could see every crevice of the room. That there were no corners or anything that he couldn't see the other side of or that were too dark. So he just that just got him in the mood to be scared by this stuff, which I think is pretty cool. While they were there, Stephen King was present for a lot of it. Not only because he was, he in was it. a producer on it, he was in it, <laughs> uh, he wrote the script. But just because you're the writer doesn't always mean that you get privileges during the making. But of course, this is like King's baby, so he's going to. But he was taking a post-grad film direction course at the same time because he says in the commentary that he wants to, I don't know if he has yet, uh, write a book about making films and TV. Because he already has his on-writing book where it's supposedly, I've never read it, but supposedly it's a really fascinating and valuable book about the skill of writing. I just find it interesting that he wrote an entire book about that because Uh he's very famously quoted as saying, everyone asks me how I write. Yeah. All I have to tell them is just write. Yep. So it's interesting that he he wrote wrote a whole book book about it. And a long time ago too. (laughs) But I think it's probably his answer to when people go like, what's your one piece of advice? Like that's probably it. But if you want like the manifesto, he has that. A few cameos in this. Mick Garris's wife, Cynthia Garris, plays the woman in Room 217. So that's the director's wife, and she's wearing contacts, and this is just a little bit of a behind-the-scenes little fun thing. The contacts that she wears are the same ones that Ruby D wore in The Stand. Ruby D was Mother Abigail, and that was also directed by Mick Garris. Uh, she's like, oh, they fit perfectly, like a glove. <sighs> Sam Raimi, obviously the director of Evil Dead and Spider-Man, He's the garage attendant who gives a snowmobile to Dick. Oh, yeah. I remember you pointing Dick that out. Dick calls one MFA and you're like, oh, it's a motherfucking something or whatever, right? And Raimi asks him what that means and he's like, mighty fine American. I love you, Howie. You're one cheery MFA. MFA? Mighty fine American. What the fuck was this scene about? I don't know. Why does this exist? I don't know. It was so weird. (laughs) 
And a, a little side thing is that Stephen King was actually the third unit director on this movie. So second unit gets a lot of pickup scenes, overflow from the first unit, stuff that maybe there's no acting in, but they need B-roll type footage. Third unit is all the little stuff. So like when you see, oh God, sometimes they're awful. Maybe it's because they don't have a third unit to do this stuff. But when you see like photographs of people and in this case, all the photos in the albums downstairs that Jack finds were all directed by Stephen King. He got to lead that third unit. I just thought that that was a a fun little thing. Good for you, Stephen. (laughs) So, Kelsey. Yes. Again, we could talk forever about both of these. There's tons of stuff that we're leaving out. Yeah, there's tons and tons of stuff I'm not saying. But there's no way in hell we're going to get to it all. So if there is something you think we've missed or you think we left out that you'd like to share, please, by all means, send it to us on Twitter. We'd love to share it with everybody. Um. That said, what do you think this miniseries has on Rotten Tomatoes? 72? 42. Ooh. Stephen King's televisual adaptation of his own novel is more faithful than its cinematic counterpart. But unfortunately, this miniseries is hobbled by a drab literalism of the text and cheesy effects that diminish the scares. It's not wrong. That's almost exactly what I think about it. That's still really low. Right, but I mean the consensus that it's hobbled by the literalism to the text. Yes. I agree. Kubrick maybe went too far. King didn't go far enough with his own material, Mm -hmm. I think is the the balance there. Mm -hmm. Just like they have two different Jacks and the real Jack is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. I think the real televisual, as they put it, Shining, is probably somewhere in the middle of these. So underrated, you think? 42? Yes. What would you give it? I will give it a 73. Interesting. I was going to give it a 70. Why do you think 73? Mm, Mostly because it's such a good adaptation. Right. To be honest, I think the fact that we've read the book gets this adaptation more points. Probably. And if we hadn't read the book and we just saw it on its own, we'd probably be closer to like a Rose Red. I know you like Rose Red. (laughs) You know, where it's like we haven't read the original source material and it's like, wow, this is super fucking cheesy. She keeps giving me these looks when I say this (laughs) stuff about Rose Red. (laughs) So, yes, to be honest, the fact that this is a maybe not fantastic but good adaptation of the book merits it some extra points there. And I think Rebecca de Mornay did a good job. I think Steven Weber did a good job until he went full, full crazy. I think the kid is... Cortland Mead is 50-50. He's not 50, bad. 50. He's 50-50. Yeah. Whenever I'm not like, oh my God, you're being obnoxious, <laughs> I think he's doing great. It's like one or the other and that's it. And yeah, I mean, like, it's it's the story and it's got way more of the book in it. So that's pretty much all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> there is no Metacritic or obviously cinema score since this was not in cinemas. Kelsey... That is the end of our double feature, the late night double feature show. on 1980 and 1997's The Shinings. Wow, that's our 100th episode. Holy shit. What are we watching for our 101st episode? Well, it's birthday season for us. It is. This episode is going to fall in between our two birthdays. Yeah. 
So we're last year we did two weeks of birthdays. This year we'll only do one. So we will be watching a movie called Sweet Sixteen. Yes, which is a little known, maybe hard to find. I mean, it is on, it's on iTunes and Amazon, and we watched it on YouTube. But you do have to pay for it, I mean. Yeah. It's not like actually streaming for free anywhere. No. About a young woman who is turning 16 and who every boy she's interested in ends up dead. <laughs> I'll reserve any comments for that episode. What else? And then we're going to do Happy Death Day to You. Yeah. Which we haven't watched yet. I'm excited to watch it. I've heard it does really interesting things with the format. If you remember when we watched Happy Death Day, it was one that we ultimately liked, but we felt was flawed in many ways that people seemed to overlook. And we were very surprised by the fact that it was so beloved. Yeah. But we did like it. It had a lot of issues. Yeah, I'm interested to see what they do with the second one. Apparently, this one's more about... Like, actually focusing on the concept of that reincarnation starting over stuff. It also adds in, like, a multiverse mm-hmm. concept. Uh, so it's like that montage in the middle of Happy Death Day where she's, like, trying to find out who her killer oh, is and dying over and over again. Oh, you mean the worst part of it? Oh. It's like that, oh, but cool. like a whole movie of it. Oh. From what I hear, I've never seen it. <laughs> so we'll be seeing it for the first time for this. I won't do our regular housekeeping because I did it at the beginning of this episode. So I just want to say thank you all very much for 100 episodes. I cannot believe it. We made it this far and we're going to keep on going because you're out there listening. So we really, really appreciate it. And we love each and every one of you. Until next time, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Red rum! Red rum! Red rum! Can you, uh, pause it, Bear? Time to record. We were watching 90 Day Fiancé. That's the castle theme from Super Mario World. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. You want to try that again? <laughs> <laughs> we are watching 1983... 80, 80, 80. 80. Fuck. I won't... Obviously, I'm not going to say any names, but if any of them ever heard this, they'd know exactly who I'm talking about, but I don't think anybody from my high school is listening, so... Actually, it wasn't our se- our last show. It was actually our first show in the first semester anyway it doesn't matter anyway she 
Um, so yeah, he asks him, would you like some ice cream? And whilst... You want to say that again? The actual room in the Stanley, in the book... So, okay, let's rewind. Re -re 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 -re. I don't know what some of these notes mean, but basically, they, they've they seen the hotel. So, uh, I wrote a bunch of stuff here that I don't know what it means. But anyway, hey, I'm happy that you brought me breakfast and bread and everything's great. And then wanna, the next you wanna, time... You want to say that again? This lake or, or river or whatever it is. Oh, I know where it is. I know where it is. I have it here. This is the point of no return. Oh, Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, Listen, pal, it's 1980. You can't <laughs> say that anymore. And then she sees all these skeletons. Can, can you, skeletons? Can you say that over again? I guess the world's just stupid. Anyway. <laughs> what do you think about the relation? Oh, my God. Um, Not, were any of them breakable? Oh God. There's the one on the stand. I think it's not like a super fragile one. We have ghosts. We have ghosts. That was so weird. We're talking about The Shining and then some stuff falls off a shelf. Mm. Apropos of nothing. Stuff that's been there for years. <laughs> he did a lot of that, my father. 